I pay tribute to my predecessor and wish him well in his new post. I look forward to working with you as colleagues of the Justice Committee. So we'll get straight to business. The key issue for today's meeting uh, is an, over, uh, an oral evidence session with the Director of Public Prosecutions, an update on the oral evidence session on the damages uh, return on investment bill, an update on the due diligence process and implementation of the financial eligibility waiver for victims of domestic abuse, a statutory rule to enable online applications in non-contentious uh, probate cases, a statutory rule to add universal credit to the list of benefits from which deductions can be made for the payment of a fine, consideration of a statutory instrument, the market surveillance Northern Ireland regulations 2021, proposed statutory rule to make four minor drafting amendments uh, and add a new schedule to the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, application of the Police and Criminal Evidence Northern Ireland Order 1989, written briefing paper on proposed legislative powers and non-legislative initiative to address antisocial behaviour, an update in relation to the implementation of the recommendations within the report into the legislative error in the Sexual Offences Northern Ireland Order 2000. And eight. So I think with that, that will probably keep us going in business for today. Can I advise members that they are welcome to use mobile devices as long as they are in airplane mode and all devices are muted. Also remind members that they are obliged to declare any financial or other relevant interests which might reasonably be thought by others to influence their approach to the matter under consideration. Any members who have interest to declare in relation to today's business should do so now or when the particular matter arises in the meeting. Chair, can Linda? I first of all just to welcome you Thank you. and your new role as Chair of the Committee. Um, you're very welcome and I wish Paul... The, the very best in his new role as well, just to declare an interest as one of the 24 who was under investigation by the okay. CBS in relation to Bobby Story's funeral. Okay, thank you. Okay, can we have agreement of the members of for the oral evidence session with the Director of Public Prosecutions be reported by Hansard? Agreed. Agreed, thank you. Uh, item one uh, is apologies. And we have apologies from uh, Gordon Dunn, Paul Frew, and Emma Rogan. Uh, also, just to advise members that Sinead, uh, Rachel, and Doug, and Gemma are joining by Starleaf and welcome them to the meeting. Uh, I think Gemma is going to be a wee bit late, so that has been noted by us. Okay, we'll ask the clerk to advise which members, if any, have indicated they have delegated authority to vote on their behalf as provided for by Standing Order 1156. Thank you, Chairman. Under Standing Order 1156, Gordon Dunn and Paul Frey have delegated their votes to the Chairperson, Mervyn Storey, and Emma Rogan has delegated her vote to the Deputy Chairperson, Linda Dillon, and Gemma Dolan has delegated her vote to the Chairperson until she joins the meeting. Okay. Thank you. And of course, in relation to, we send our, our best wishes to Paul, his new appointment, and also our thoughts and prayers continue to be with Gordon uh, as he uh, has, as we all know, uh, faced uh, considerable health issues in, in recent times. Agenda item two is the draft minutes of the meeting held on the 10th of June. Uh, can I refer members to pages 5 to 19 of the meeting pack for the draft minutes of the meeting held on that date? 
Are members content that the minutes are a true reflection of the proceedings of the meeting held on the 10th of June? Agreed. Okay. Thank you. Amendment item 3, matters arising. Item 1, correspondence from the Minister of Justice providing an update on the Justice Bill. Can I refer members to the relevant correspondence at pages 21 to 23 of today's pack? Members, you will be aware that the Minister has responded to the Committee's request for an update on the time frame for the Justice Bill. The Minister has indicated that she has yet to secure executive approval for the introduction of the Bill and is concerned that if approval is not granted as a matter of urgency, it will not be possible to progress the Bill during the remainder of this mandate. Just ask members to note that correspondence. Chair, can I? Yes, Linda. Thank, thank you very much. I raised this at, at a number of previous meetings, and I am certainly going to be lobbying our new First Minister in relation to this as, as, as the former Chair of the Justice Committee. There are a number of issues within, within the Justice Bill that are really, really very important, not least around the Gillen recommendations around sex sexual and domestic violence, but there are a number of other issues that are important to this committee around um, dappos and dappins and, and, and a whole wide range of things that we want to see coming forward. The bill, as far as I'm aware, was agreed by the executive. There's no reason why it shouldn't be with this committee. It was something that we raised at the very beginning, whenever we, we came back and into this mandate that we wanted to see that bill come up before the committee as soon as possible and we wanted to see it through in this mandate. And I would like to see it coming from the executive to our chefs. The decisions around these issues need to be made by the Assembly. Thank you, Linda. I think Rachel, have you your hand up? Thank you, Chair, and uh, welcome to your new position in the committee. Um, I look forward to working with you for the remainder of this mandate. Um, I just want to, like Linda as well, express deep concern about the delay of this bill. This bill has been much sought after by many members of the committee for various reasons, but not notwithstanding the, the absolute need to get those Gillen uh, recommendations in, uh, the recommendations and legislation on child exploitation and upskirting and downblousing specifically as well. Um, lots of other things that we need to have tidied up before the end of the mandate. Um, so any any pressure that can be, I, I just I hope the executive in its new form today can agree to get let this be introduced. Um, we have had a number of months of delay, um, even from last year. Um, so I don't understand um, what the current situation is. I hope that that can be resolved um, as soon as possible to get this um, introduced in time for it to be passed. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Shanead. Thank you, Chair, and I'd like to officially uh, welcome you to your post as well. Chair, it, it was a bit disappointing to see uh, the content of the letter, but I'm um, trying to be the optimist. There, there are former members of the, this committee who now sit on the executive and um, know very well the weight of the content and uh, how important it is to the work of this committee. So it may, um, it, I might propose that we actually write back to the executive and ask for an early review um, of that bill because I think it does need to come in front of the committee as soon as possible and perhaps um, the new makeup of the executive may, may be enough to make that happen. Okay, members content? Agreed? Agreed. Okay, just in terms, I plan to meet the minister uh, next week uh, so that we can have an introduction and I undertake to raise the issue informally, we have had a uh, just a very brief conversation 
uh, and it was the issue that the Minister raised with me in terms of the Bill. And I want to try and understand as well. It would seem as though there, there is a concern that the Bill is becoming ever wider and the possibility of everything apart from the kitchen sink being put into the Bill. And one of the difficulties is when that happens, then uh, it is a challenge as to the, the narrow focus of the bill. And members rightly, both Rachel, uh, Sinead and, and Linda, have raised the issues in relation to the Gillen report. And obviously we want to see that getting a priority. There may be other issues that, that members or, or ministers might want to include, but whether or not that dilutes and becomes so that the scope of the bill is not as focused that's what I want to try and scope out, if I possibly can. And anything I can bring back to the committee, I will endeavour to do so. Okay. That brings us to... So thank you for that, members. Uh, we have the <coughs> correspondence from item two from the form of complex injury solicitors providing a copy of the government accurate advice to the Lord uh, Chancellor. And if you have a spare couple of hours and you want to read that very easy digested document, I would suggest that you take a weekend <laughs> and do that, because it certainly is, uh, there's a considerable amount of detail. And that's at pages 24 to 102 of today's PIKE. Uh, during the oral evidence session last week with the form of complex injury solicitors, the representative agreed to provide additional information in relation to the margin of adjustment and mitigate against the broader risk of undercompensation. A copy of the government's advice to the Lord Chancellor on the 25th of June 2019 has been provided along with a copy of an article concerning the discount rate which was written for the new law journal in September 2017. Okay, just note the additional information. Yeah. Okay, and can I also... Sure, can I just make one comment, sorry, yes. on that? Yes, uh, Just to say that having, having looked at that document, it certainly reaffirms, not that anybody questioned, but it reaffirms um, that GAD are the correct partner in this because they have that le level of specialism, yeah. which we, we don't even have within our own civil service. So um, I know at the outset of this, there were questions around that, but I think that has been... This document, for me, concludes that okay. argument. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Just to advise members, the information will be added to the electronic bill folder on the committee bill webpage. Item three, an update on the committee forward work programme uh, for June and July of 2021. Re uh, referring members to the updated work programme, and there at pages 103 to 107. Uh, just to advise the committee that the work programme has been updated to reflect the changes agreed at last week's meeting and the oral evidence session with Judge Marion on the findings and recommendations of his review of the hate crime legislation in Northern Ireland has now been confirmed for our meeting on the 8th of July. Item 4 is the Public Prosecution Service oral evidence session on prosecutorial matters. And we have uh, with us today the Director of Public Prosecutions and his Deputy. And at the request of the committee, uh, this was arranged to discuss a range of uh, prosecutorial matters. And the relevant pages are at page 109 to 130 of the meeting pack and a paper setting out the format of the session together with a letter from the Director uh, 
to myself following uh, my appointment are at pages four to nine of uh, the table pack. And can I welcome uh, to the committee for the first time in my role as chair? Uh, I know it's not uh, his uh, first time to the Justice Committee, uh, Mr Stephen Heron, Director of Public Prosecution Service, and uh, Mr Michael Agnew, who is the Deputy Director of Public Prosecution Service, and uh, just to advise them that the session will be reported by Hansard and a transcript will be published on the committee webpage. To inform members uh, and the witnesses that the session will be structured into three parts so that we can uh, execute, I trust, the most profit out of the time that we have with the Director uh, and his Deputy. Uh, the Director will make uh, brief opening remarks at the beginning of each part, following on which there will be an opportunity for members to ask questions before we move on to the next part. And members should try to ask their questions at the appropriate time to avoid duplication. So that's me ruled out probably from the very start uh, on the basis of my own advice. Uh, and the first part that we want to uh, look at would be the role and responsibility of the PPS and accountability. And can I advise members that the first area to be covered is that and welcome uh, the director uh, and ask him to make his op opening remarks, please. Thank you. Thank you, Chair, for that uh, warm welcome and congratulations on your appointment. Uh, it's you. good to see both you and the, the Deputy Chair in person and I look forward to engaging with you and the members via Starleaf. Uh, Michael and I, the Deputy Director, and I are very pleased to speak to you today on, on matters we think will be of interest to the Committee. Uh, as you mentioned, Chair, we wrote to you just to outline in advance what those were. So it's the role and responsibilities of the PPS and accountability, uh, criminal justice transformation, COVID recovery and tackling delay, and funding pressures, particularly relating to legacy casework. So I'll just spend a few minutes on each of those topics, and then, uh, as you said, Chair, members can feel free to ask questions at the end of that. Um, first, the role and responsibilities of the PPS. Uh, the PPS was established in 2005 by virtue of the Justice Northern Ireland Act 2002, uh, and this act itself was the outworking of recommendations of the Criminal Justice Review 2000, which was established pursuant to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And a key finding of that review was that the independence of the prosecution function stands at the heart of the rule of law. In a common law environment, the prosecutor stands between the state and the individual. And it is critical, therefore, that the prosecuting authority is independent. So this independence made its way into the 2002 Act through a number of provisions, uh, two important ones I'll, I'll just outline today. Section 42 states that the functions of the director shall be exercised by him independently of any other person. And Section 3011 provides that the director and the deputy director and members of staff of the service may not be required in any proceedings of the assembly to answer any question or produce any document relating to a matter other than the finances and administration of the service. So prosecutors are thus required by statute to act independently of the investigative agency, which is usually the police, uh, of the executive, of the victim, and of the judiciary. So the 2002 Act was deliberately constructed to protect prosecutorial decision-making from political interference or influence, both perceived and actual. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that has gone on in my time as director, but that's uh, obviously something that was envisaged as a potential by those who looked at the, um, the office back in 2000. So that's why there's no requirement for the director to appear before the Assembly to answer questions about any matter except finances or administration. 
So the accountability for the PPS decision-making is primarily secured through due process in the courts. Thus, a decision to prosecute can be robustly tested through the criminal trial process, and a decision not to prosecute can be judicially reviewed. But the reason I'm here today is, notwithstanding the constraints imposed by statute and convention, the PPS has always been willing to assist this committee and others in explaining matters of prosecutorial policy or practice or the operational implications for PPS of new <coughs> legislation being brought forward. And recent appearances have included discussions on committal reform, which we might touch on again today, victim and witness care, and the recently passed legislation creating new offences dealing with domestic violence and abuse. So we certainly find there's great value in ensuring that politicians and indeed the wider public understand our role. And I think it's fair to say we're sometimes misunderstood and that can create negative perceptions. So although on one hand the functions of the PPS would seem very straightforward, firstly, to take decisions as to prosecution and have conduct of proceedings at trial, and then secondly, to give appropriate prosecutorial advice to police. In reality, how this is delivered is not so easily explained and is quite nuanced. So there are often what can appear to be contradictions in the role of the prosecutor, which require a careful balancing exercise to get right on every occasion. And I'll just give a few examples. So firstly, while the PPS is victim-focused, in delivering its services, it is not a representative of the victim and must also actively uphold the defendant's right to a fair trial. And while the PPS acts in the public interest, it cannot allow public sentiment or concern to influence its decision-making. So the first requirement in every case is for a wholly objective application of the test for prosecution by asking whether the available evidence provides a reasonable prospect of conviction. And while prosecutorial independence from government is a cornerstone of public confidence in decision-making, there's also a public expectation that the PPS will work in partnership with other stakeholders, such as the Department of Justice, police, courts, and the judiciary on initiatives to improve the overall effectiveness of the criminal justice system. So I recognize, therefore, that the independence of the PPS, while essential to ensuring the integrity of its decision-making, does not mean that it should act in complete isolation from other parts of the justice system. I'm also aware that in a society often divided on its reaction to prosecution decisions on religious or political grounds, we cannot remain completely detached from the hurt or anger that can follow what is perceived by some to be a wrong decision or an unfair one. However, I firmly believe that public confidence remains best served through an independent prosecution service that is accountable through the law and transparent in its operation. So there's a number of different ways in which the PPS is accountable and transparent, and I'll just out outline some of those before I draw my comments to a close. So firstly, it's through the giving of reasons to victims for decisions not to prosecute, and that was introduced in certain cases by us in 2009, and then it's enshrined in a statutory footing through the Victim Charter in 2016. Through the right to request a review of a no prosecution decision and the potential for a judicial review, through accountability to the Department of Finance and the Public Accounts Committee on Financial Matters. I'm director, I'm also accounting officer for the organization. We're subject to regular inspection by the Criminal Justice Inspection Northern Ireland. We have a robust complaints process with PPS being the first jurisdiction in the UK and Ireland to appoint an independent assessor for complaints back in 2005. Uh, we publish key policies and procedures, most notably the Code for Prosecutors. Uh, we also publish an annual report detailing our governance and financial position, and also we released regular statistical bulletins relating to our performance. 
And finally then, uh, we're an active participant in the Criminal Justice Board and numerous subgroups designed to deliver a more effective joined up system of justice. So I hope that gives a, a helpful overview as a, an introduction to the role and process of the PPS. I certainly welcome the opportunity to come here today, offer some insight and to engage you with the hear, hear your views, particularly about um, whether there's a, a perceived accountability gap and what we can do to try to address that. Um, that's certainly something I'm very interested in discussing today. So I'm, I'm happy to take questions, Chair. Thank you, Stephen, and, and, and that is useful. And there's a number of, of areas, I suppose, that the, the whole accountability piece that we, we want to try and maybe tease out with you. But you make reference in your opening remarks to the issue of, of confidence and public confidence. Do you believe that public confidence was uh, enhanced or was it damaged when we had uh, a very public uh, event, uh, and sadly it was in relation to uh, the passing of an individual, I refer to the Bobby Story funeral, where there was a recommendation for prosecution, but then there was subsequently a decision not to prosecute, and uh, you have now concluded a review in relation to that matter. And you'll be well aware, while I respect entirely your independence, and would defend that independence. But for the people that don't have an opportunity like us on this committee to ask the, the senior director, the director of the public prosecution in Northern Ireland, I ask it on their behalf. Has that confidence been damaged? Uh, both in, and you're not answerable to the police, uh, not answerable for the police, sorry. You're solely <coughs> answerable for uh, the responsibilities that you have do you believe that that confidence has been damaged? And given the fact that uh, the, pre the first uh, press release that you issued announcing that there would be no prosecutions, you, you stated that there was no evidence that the PSNI had provided an unequivocal representation that no prosecution for breaches of the regulations would follow the funeral. If that had happened, unequivocal representation, would that have less? Would that have led to the evidential test being passed? Well, as I say, Chair, I have to be circumspect about talking about cases involving individuals um, because, as, as I outlined in the introduction, the construct of the 2002 Act is deliberate. So I don't actually talk about matters other than financial administration. I'm willing to talk about cases to help explain sort of themes or policies or procedures. But I am reluctant to talk about individual cases. I will deal with the unequivocal representation point because I think that's fairly distinct if I take that matter first, uh, Chair, if you don't mind. What we were saying in the, in the um, public statement, we were trying to explain the basis for the decisions. We said there was no unequivocal representation from police that there'd be no uh, prosecutions brought. That is actually something in favour of the police, that there was, uh, as I think the Chief Counsel put it, there was no deal done. That was us confirming there was nothing we had reviewed in the evidence to say that there was any arrangement reached with uh, funeral organisers, that there wouldn't be any prosecutions for COVID breaches. So that actually, we were saying, meant that there wasn't, we had a look at whether the uh, prosecution would be an abusive process. Had there been such an unequivocal representation from police, then that would have potentially amounted to an abusive process, but that wasn't the case. So that I think um, that would steer away from thinking that that was something that police did wrong by not giving an unequivocal representation in that regard. Um, 
As regards public confidence generally, uh, I mean, a number of decisions from my office will be not popular with one section of the community or another. Uh, I accept that. Uh, and that's very much why the prosecutor's role is to be independent from um, the government, the judiciary, police, and to take decisions wholly in accordance with the test for prosecution. That's where the integrity of the decision-making comes in. Now, I hope the public can take confidence that this is now three occasions where um, that decision has been upheld. If you like our original decision, we got senior counsel advice, the HMAC uh, review, they got their own advice. And there's been a review where a third senior counsel has looked at the case and they've all come up with the same conclusion. So whilst I <coughs> do appreciate that there has been a, a lot of hurt and anger about what happened in that particular case, uh, I would like to think that at the end of the day, the integrity of our decision making has been upheld and that itself in the longer term will uphold public confidence. In terms of the wider piece in relation to prosecutions and Sadly, this was all in the context of a pandemic and something which had a, a, a devastating impact on many families uh, who sadly lost loved ones. But there also became a very adversarial confrontation on a variety of uh, fronts, whether it was protests or individuals uh, breaching the regulations. Do you think that there are lessons that we can learn and I trust that we don't have to go to another uh, form of lockdown as we have, uh, I trust, are coming out of. But in terms of that approach in relation to prosecutions using uh, summary offences, the, the, the way in which we, the executive has set aside or set and established regulations, and then it's left to the police to enforce those. Has, has there been lessons learned out of that that says there is a better way to encourage the public to stay within not only the letter but the spirit of those regulations? Well, I think when you look, uh, certainly there's been a lot of other work ongoing to look at the regulations. So you had the HMIC review. You've also had a House of Lords Select Committee just last week um, looked at what was happening in England and Wales, and there are common themes emerging. But what I would say first, Chair, perhaps um, we find problems with enforcing the regulations. In a small number of cases, we've had quite a few other prosecutions for uh, offences under the coronavirus regulations. And some of the more high-profile ones that have been no prosecutions have perhaps uh, caused the, the question that you've asked me today. So I wouldn't say they have been ineffective. There have been difficulties because of the fast pace of the regulations being made um, at certain points in time with enforcement. And that, that has been an issue. But I would say overall, in terms of um, how the public reacted, most people obviously got the message. Um, you know, stay-at-home message was very effective, and I think most people understood that. And overall, the regulations played their role then. You know, people yeah. did abide by the message. I think the House of Lords Committee and the uh, HMIC review both said, look, there needed to be more clarity in the law. And if you look at um, again, that's no criticism of anybody here or in any other jurisdiction who made the regulations. There are emergency regulations made at pace, and they were constantly being amended. It's difficult to keep up. But what I think they all said was that they needed to be clear, they needed to be publicly accessible, and there's been recommendations by the Select Committee about how the government might do that. People who are communicating the message need to be very clear about whether this is a regulation or whether this is guidance or whether it's a recommendation, because sometimes 
uh, people's understanding of those aren't very clear. Um, now, again, I would emphasise sometimes it doesn't need to be that clear for people to just say, whatever it is, I'm better not engaged in that behaviour and, and I'll do what I'm being told. But there are difficulties then for police whenever it is not clear what the intent behind any particular regulation or change is, because they're expected to imply what's called the four E's, you'll be aware. Um, you know, they have to engage, explain, encourage, and then enforcement is the last option. So if they are not at an early stage meeting with those or getting uh, some contact with those who are passing regulations at very short notice on some occasions, I have a lot of sympathy with police in trying to actually engage and explain those to other people. Because usually when a new law is created, there is uh, an opportunity for police to become acquainted with it, to train officers. This was all being done at breakneck pace here. And so some of the issues that have arisen here, we have seen in other jurisdictions, and they're, they're just a result of having to work so swiftly in the pandemic. Just the, the final question for me, and then we, we'll go to members, if we, members could just indicate. Uh, in, in, in relation to that space of... Because uh, obviously, and I'm now no longer a member of the policing board, uh, uh, having taken up this role, and obviously we had sight of the HMIC report and various other commentary that has been made, and you rightly make reference to the House of Lords. Was there a, a missed opportunity for the executive to seek uh, advice or have a conversation with your office, as is the case, and maybe we want to pursue that a little bit later, around the way in which your office uh, uh, and staff interact with the police to ensure that there is the best possible opportunity for uh, meeting the evidential test and subsequently a prosecution. Was there a missed opportunity for the executive to have those conversations? Because one of the criticisms of the HMIC report was, as far as the police were concerned, was the fact that the legal department within the PSNI wasn't even in the room whenever the Gold Command uh, was being put together in relation to how th that particular event was to be uh, placed. Do you think that was a missed opportunity? And should that form part of any further regulations that there are proper that there are adequate conversations held so that there is because ignorance is no excuse as you rightly have said in previous statements of the law but certainly it has been used as a means of some people trying to get away from facing the consequences of those regulations thanks chair for the question because it is quite a nuance prosecutorial advice um, it's potentially what you're thinking about there. Yes. That is quite a balancing exercise because we do have to stay on the right line of being an arm's length body when it comes to uh, basically the government, the executive making regulations. You know, that is government setting the law uh, and policy. There's no place for the PPS in that, as I've sort of outlined in my opening remarks, because uh, we have to be very careful. Later on, we then come to look at potential offences that have been um, allegedly committed as regards regulation breaches. And it's our job to independently assess that. And if we've been involved in somehow quality assuring or feeding into the regulations that were set, some people may think there's a, a built-in bias in our decision-making yeah. to try and enforce those then. And we have to objectively look at those regulations. 
And I appreciate that's quite difficult for people to understand, and we certainly want to play our part in, in lessons learned. And we are happy to give feedback on, on any of the issues we have found with the regulations at a particular point in time. But it's probably for uh, police initially to get their own legal advice and for the executive to get their own legal advice about any sort of gaps or possible inconsistencies. And then later on, when police have specific issues to deal with, that's where prosecutorial advice plays more of a role. Thank you. Sinead? Yeah. Sinead, uh, you're not muted. Yep, that's yeah, it, right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and thanks to Stephen and Michael. Um, Stephen, I wonder could you explain to me, whenever the PSNI um, are considering the evidential threshold on whether to make a recommendation um, on, on to, to go forward um, to conviction, is that different to the threshold that you consider? I know that you talked about having to weigh up um, the things of being victim focused, but the right of the defendant and also the um, being objective, and you know, you also have that overlying piece where you have to. Um, there has to be a reasonable prospect of there being a conviction. But is it notably different? to the assessment that the PSNI have to make in advance before they bring it to you with a recommendation? Uh, thanks. Yep. I mean, that's a useful question, again, to illustrate by way of a few examples. There is a difference between what happens here and England and Wales. So in England and Wales, police would apply a test and not submit as many cases that are potential no prosecutions to the CPS. But here, uh, say, as a result of the Justice Act uh, and what happened with the Criminal Justice Review, there's only about 70% of the cases we get sent by police that we actually think meet the test for prosecution, so there's about a 30% no prosecution rate. Now, the recommendations from police can be of value, but at the end of the day, they are just the investigating officers feel for the case, if you like. You know, they will not be expected, quite rightly, to maybe have looked at whether certain evidence is admissible, for example. So they may think that the evidence from this witness or this interview is reliable, um, but there may be issues around admissibility or things like hearsay or bad character, which are matters that the lawyer would have to look at. That would mean the recommendation is really only a field by the officer at a given point in time. And what usually happens is um, police officers can submit files with recommendations on them. We could maybe then have a look at the file and think, we don't think this case meets the test for prosecution for reasons X, Y, and Z. Usually, whenever we get police in to explain that, and we do give them the opportunity, um, you know, is there anything we've missed here? Have we uh, misinterpreted some of the evidence here? Is there more evidence we could get that could change things? They usually agree you know, with that recommendation. So their recommendation goes in at the start before there has been consideration. And quite often, when that file goes in from police, there is more evidence as required. So it very much changes. So you can find a police recommendation at the start of a case, it's different at the end, because at the end of the case, they would basically agree with us. So it's a useful aid for us in assessing the police feel. But ultimately, as you've recognised, the independence falls for us by applying the test. And the police view on that is only one part of that overall assessment that we make. OK, and if I'm correct, then I can take from that statement that you do you think there might be a body of work to be done further upstream with the police, that they have a more accurate reading of what the evidential threshold really is, um, rather than 
taken victims maybe on a false promise um, that a recommendation is going to PPS and also then of that 30% that you're saying that that don't proceed, that you know, may present you with a recommendation to go ahead and don't. Um, the appeals process you referred to, what just uh, I don't want to really put you in the spot with numbers, but roughly of that 30%, uh, what sort of number of that going through appeal then would proceed um, that it was determined that the PPS maybe didn't get it right and it, and it would proceed? Well, I'll break, I'll break that down. Firstly, there's a, I think there was two parts of the question about uh, whether police are given a false promise and need to do more work on their recommendations. There's all sorts of files come in from police, so the very low level offending where um, I don't think police would need to put a lot of work into that. But actually, what we do find is with the specialist police teams, you know, the major investigation teams, terrorist cases, they have looked at the evidential threshold, as you described it, in a lot more detail. And you do get high-quality recommendations and you do get good engagement on it. And they do understand the legal issues a lot more because they're a lot more used to dealing with us on a day-to-day -day basis and they've picked up some of the things we've told them from previous cases. So th there need to be a degree of proportionality in that. Bear in mind, the police don't have to make recommendations. We find them of value, but I certainly wouldn't put um, any onus on the Chief Constable to try and train police any more than they already are. Secondly, the, the appeal process is a right to review. Um, now, it's fair to say I don't have the numbers. I can certainly provide them in, in writing. The numbers in which we make a decision not to prosecute, there's then a review, uh, an internal review, so it'll go to a different lawyer unless there's new evidence. Uh, and if there's been senior counsel involved the first time, usually there's a different senior counsel the second time as well. The numbers in which we then change that decision uh, would be small. Um, and the numbers then that go on to be judicially reviewed and where the court would find actually that there's very narrow parameters for the court to find that that decision was wrong, would need to have been you know, unlawful, irrational for some reason. Um, those numbers are very small as well. They're extremely small. Okay, I, might just... I, appreciate, I would appreciate those numbers. I know there's reassuring to hear the small thing. And finally, Chair, for me, if, if I may, um, in terms then of, you mentioned at the outset, and I think, Stephen, it, it cuts to the heart of, in terms of the perceptions and maybe the lacking in confidence, um, do you recognise that there, there does appear, at least the perception is there, that there is a missing piece around the accountability mechanisms and you're closer to this than anyone. Would you have any suggestions on how that might be approached? Certainly, um, I can understand how there's a perception of an accountability gap because when you look at the Criminal Justice Review, you know, back then we were moving from the RUC to the PSNI and a lot of focus in that review was around uh, policing. And there does seem to be a lot of accountability mechanisms for police. But actually what the Criminal Justice Re Review did was reverse the position that there had been. So there had been superintendents from an English Attorney General prior to the Justice Act coming into effect. And that was looked at in some detail and consulted upon at length at that time. And our model here is actually closer to the model in the Republic of Ireland, where there's a consultative relationship between um, the DPP down there and the Attorney General. That's the same here. Uh, and that's a, a deliberate construct. They deliberately didn't go with the English model back in 2000 and they went with the Irish model. Now, what I think there could be room for, obviously we've got an interim Attorney General at the, at the minute, um, that consultative relationship could be more clearly defined. Perhaps there could be you know, an MOU about what that actually means. Uh, perhaps I could come and appear here more regularly to talk about matters of prosecution practice 
uh, and policy. I do think there's ways we can, without having to look at legislation, which I know the legislative agenda for the Assembly is very full, we can look to work cooperatively to, to bridge that gap. That doesn't impinge unnecessarily on my independence. I'm very open to, to being involved in that debate, because certainly I want to hear of any concerns there are about the accountability. We are a bit like the judiciary in terms of a, a decision not to prosecute as quasi-judicial. And, you know, in, in cases we give every victim reasons for it, where they're high profile, we come out and we try to explain publicly the statement, and it can be judicially reviewed. So there is accountability there and through the other mechanisms. But, but I think the independence would, be, for me, um, I'd be concerned about the, getting the balance right between accountability and independence, and I'm, I'm certainly happy to get involved in, in further discussion on that. Thank you, Sinead. Michael, you, want, you. Uh, you wanted to come in on yeah, a point no, that Sinead raised. Certainly, on, on the previous point, I was just going to explain that, um, obviously, we'll get the figures around review requests and the extent to which they're overturned, but to my recollection, the vast majority and it may even be all of the review, formal review requests we'll get will be from victims rather than investigative agencies. Right? There is, there is um, scope for an investigative agency to request a review, um, but I think the dialogue that the director referred to earlier, whereby there's already that opportunity to engage and discuss cases face-to-face -face and explain the reasoning, um, results in practice in a situation where the investigating agencies, almost um, without exception, accept the decision at the, at the end of the process. Thank you. Uh, Linda. Thank you, Chair. I think that much of this, and, and you said earlier you have, you have um, sympathy with the, the police in terms of trying to police the regulations, and so do I, to be honest. And I was very clear about that from the very beginning in, in this committee, whenever they appeared before us, because it wasn't easy. Um, it was very difficult, and they had to do it in very difficult circumstances. There's no doubt about that. And I do think that there's an issue around the PPS and the PSNA where if you don't like a decision, then you're the enemy because you had to make that decision. And that's, that's very much the case for ourselves. And in many cases as well, when we make decisions people don't like, we're, we're the enemy, regardless of the reasons for those decisions. So I, I do think it is getting a better understanding of, of why and how decisions are reached. And I mean, I know you've, you've already outlined that, that you do now give victims the reasons and for me and I might be straying into the, the, the next topic around transformation so sorry Chair okay. and Christine but for me it is about what, what support is in place then for, for those victims to understand that because it's all very well given somebody the reasons but let's be real we're talking here and very often in very legalistic language and in terms of how the law works and what you have to make your decisions based on and I can certainly speak as somebody who worked on our first piece of legislation around the domestic abuse bill it took me a long time to get my head around all the issues in that and that was with all the help and assistance that I have here and with thrashing it out with all the committee members and with all of the, the people who came before us so for a victim trying to understand why decisions are made and, and I'm just wondering how do we fix how do we fix that bit? And, and, and I'm just—I don't have an answer for you. I'm sorry. I'm just wondering. No, no, do you I'm, have any suggestions that we should be? Um, um, I'm, I'm not sure there is a legislative fix. Um, certainly, we are aware that a big part with the public prosecution service. So you know, we want to try and engage with the public. There are constraints around what you can say in a no prosecution context. As a, it, it, just to give you an example, say um, a witness 
our victim wasn't believed. Whenever you're explaining a decision, you need to be very careful to somebody about what you would say. So I know sometimes the legalistic language is quite convenient in that regard when you're saying the test for prosecution is met, you're not going into detail, but we do our best to explain. So we do appreciate that the use of legal language has to be avoided, and this is where the Criminal Justice Inspectorate have said, like every other prosecuting authority that has been looked at through inspections, cut down the legalese, you know, try to make it understandable. So we do try to break it down, uh, and if somebody has got a letter from us, we're always open to meeting them uh, to discuss. What we find that happens a, a lot uh, anyway, Linda, is that in some of the more sort of high-profile cases, often there's a lawyer involved with the family, you know, so they will have got legal representation to make representations to us about why a matter should be prosecuted, but also help explain the decision at the end of the day. So we do put a lot into that space. We're going to be um, putting out a communication strategy shortly, which if there are any other ideas we can have, and we have a, a stakeholder engagement forum, so that's uh, led by our senior assistant director, we have a lot of victims groups on there, and we are asking them, how can we better engage with victims that you, you represent as groups to help explain these decisions? Because I realise I've been prosecutor 18 years, and I wouldn't say every day is a school day for me, but every week's a school week, and there's always something I'm learning for the first time or hearing for the first time, so we don't want to be aloof and use words that people don't understand and isolate ourselves from the public that we're serving. So we're constantly looking at ways to improve that. But I think rather than legislation, it's by that continued dialogue with these victims groups and by making sure that the recommendations that are made by the likes of Jenny, we follow up on. And I think that the training, I mean, the Chair referred to it, or I think you referred to it yourself, Stephen, in relation to the regulations. Training is vital. It's something that we said during the Domestic Abuse Bill. It's something that we're focused on in the Stocking Bill. And, you know, that is so important. And without that training, how does anybody? So I'm, I'm, I suppose just to try and get a wee bit of an understanding. So, for example, with the Domestic Abuse Bill, in terms of training, because we, we were focused on the, on the organisations that we were allowed to focus on within the bill, but for yourselves, in terms of training, what, what level would that go to? Or? So every prosecutor who's going to be working on that legislation will get specialist training. I think we're involving women aid, women's aid in a, an extended period of training. So that, same with police. I mean, training is a big part of understanding any new piece of law. And because it introduces new offences, you know, it requires a substantial training piece. What we're hoping to have in place, I think the, the target date for implementation is the, the autumn of this year is we're looking to get um, specialist prosecutors brought in, specialist DB prosecutors. And what we'll be doing is we're trying to work with police. Uh, we're working with them on the proposals for a, a domestic violence clinic model, where um, some cases will not be prosecutions, and no matter what engagement there is between police and, and the prosecution will not change the evidence. Mm -hmm. But some cases you might be able to engage in a way to, to build a file that will you know, withstand the prosecution process. So the focus of that, Linda, is really just to try and see what space we can move into place, because we don't think, looking at Scotland, where this legislation, similar legislation, has already been brought in, I think they it added about another 3.5% to their workload in terms of case numbers. That's a substantial amount. But as well as the new offences, we want to work with police using the training to see well, what, what can we do with the existing framework. Uh, to make that, but training will be a huge piece in that area. I don't know, Michael, whether there's anything else you No, that's right. Um, obviously, the domestic violence specialists, part of the reason for doing that, one is because it's a priority for the organisation, um, and the victims in those offences are particularly vulnerable. 
Um, but secondly, the new legislation, and I don't envy you because it's not that straightforward, you know, even for um, experienced lawyers. Um, and we want to make sure that we do the best that we can around it. So having people who um, will be working with it regularly, and that's the best way, obviously, to get comfortable with it and, and, and to um, be, become proficient in using it from a prosecution perspective. That's what we're aiming to achieve. Um, I think the legislation also has a requirement for annual training. So that training will be, up, will be updated every year. Um, and the other important thing about it is, because the, the nature of domestic violence, understanding uh, the statutes, one thing, and being able to, to apply it, but understanding more about domestic violence, about the behaviours, about the dynamics of the relationships, you know, the sort of indicators, what things to, you know, to look out for, and so on. Um, that's why I think the training that we're going to get from Women's Aid is going to be very important, uh, because we need prosecutors who understand the law, but also understand the essence of domestic violence. And, and it's hopefully that combination of training that is going to allow us to use the legislation as best as possible. That's really helpful, particularly the piece around that is there potential to build a case in the future because I think that is where that is where you will actually build confidence, where you're not going back to victims and saying you don't meet the threshold and that's it and and they feel like they've been called a liar. And actually, particularly around domestic abuse and particularly around that course of control, they start to doubt and everyone around them starts to doubt, you know, is this real or is it not? So I think that that is important, and and I suppose that's the bit that I was trying to get to is around that support for people. So it's saying to them, you didn't meet the threshold. That doesn't make it. And I know you said sometimes the legalese language yeah. is helpful in terms of that somebody wasn't believed, but just because they weren't weren't believed, I think they need to understand that doesn't make them a liar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it just means they weren't believed by. For whatever reason, the evidence uh, absolutely. wasn't there, and that's Linda, enough. Michael, I have had many conversations with uh, victims where that's what we have said. You know, in the context of domestic violence or sexual abuse or, or other cases, that that's a very important point to make. Um, that's quite often it's the evidential threshold not being met because it is a high bar. Um, doesn't mean to say that we don't believe what the, the person is telling us at all. No, I, I appreciate that. I have one last question just on this topic, and it's on a specific case. So if you can't answer, that's fair enough. Um, it's just in relation to. Mark Sykes case at, at John Graham's Bookmakers, and it's, it's not it's not in relation to the actual case, but just the timeline. So that, I mean, that was back in February, and we're now June. Is have you a timeline for a decision? Or if you can't give me that again, that's I don't know. No, I think that's, two that's, parts that's, the ombudsman's yeah, case. So and the an ombudsman's file has been with us. Okay. Um, I don't know the exact date. I, um, it's a matter of weeks. It's been with us, okay. and I know that um, that we have a brief out of council to um, advise on that. Um, but we can. I, I, that's all I have, unfortunately, at the moment. That's I don't know enough. if we have a specific time scale for an outcome in that case. Okay. I have other questions, but they're on yes. the other yeah, hand. Okay. So yep. Thank uh, you. Rachel, do uh, you want to come in? Thanks, Chair. Um, no, I, I wasn't coming in on this section. I know, I know it um, kind right. of diverted into your section, so I'm happy to, okay. to wait. Okay, that's all right. Is any other member, uh, Doug? Uh, are you happy that we move on? You know questions in this section? No, no thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Uh, just one question before we leave that this this issue of accountability and so on. So Stephen and I appreciate the, the point you're making in relation to independence and and, uh, and value your your defence of that. But do you think that there is anything that could be done that would enhance the working relationship between the legislature? the executive of this assembly uh, and the public so that there is uh, the, that it lessens the likelihood 
of always being in that place where people for, people against, or is that an inevitable consequence of yeah. the, the, the justice and pros prosecutorial system? I think, Chair, it's fair to say, if I'd, if I'd known that one, I would have asked you to do it a long time ago. Uh, I think it's just an outworking of our independence. Now, I am, as I say, I'm here in a spirit of, of cooperation with the committee because I do think that adds value because, you know, we want to enhance understanding. There are always going to be decisions that are not going to be popular. Uh, and I think, as, we, as we've touched on there, that that's part of the integrity of our decision-making process is we have to sort of set that to the side and take what we think is the correct decision on the evidence. I do think the role that the Justice Committee already plays in the scrutiny of legislation is going to be used by us uh, is important, and you know, we, we continue to feed into that. Um, any major policies that we have coming up, for example, um, we, we're reviewing our policy for prosecuting rape and serious sexual offences, you know, we will consult on, and we're happy to come and speak to you about that. And if there are areas that the committee thinks, uh, specific areas like sexual offending, you'd like to hear more about, we're more than happy to come here. I think when the public understands the test to be applied, which, uh, say, it's fairly standard here and in England and Wales, it's an evidential test and a public interest test. That's the first point, but then whenever they, they look at public interest, there's often a misunderstanding of what that means. Yes. There are very few new prosecutions where the public interest is engaged. So I think even having the opportunity to, to say that to you today is probably of benefit. So look, we're very happy to engage in that, as I say, some form of consultative relationship with the Attorney General, where maybe the Attorney General um, could, in a, a future uh, occurrence, perhaps be asked questions about the role of the PPS, its, its practices, its procedures, its policies, again, without getting into individual cases, is something we could look at again in the future. It's already provided for under the Justice Act, but there are historic reasons about why it hasn't actually worked to date yet. And just finally on this point, is, is there... In terms of the whole process of legislation, it goes through a public consultation process as it's making its way before it becomes a policy, before it becomes a piece of legislation. Does the PPS respond to public consultations like that? Yes. 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 We, we would be um, the sentencing review, for example. Yes. yes we we yeah. would okay. respond to things like that. From the prosecutorial perspective, yes. say we don't try to influence um, no. policy or, or, no. or legislation beyond the prosecutor's perspective. Okay, we can move on then, uh, Stephen, to the second part, which is the criminal justice transformation, COVID recovery and tackling delay. And uh, no doubt there'll be a delay. There's, there has already been a delay, so we'll have a delay on this one. But if you want to make a few comments, and then members, if you could indicate if you have questions in this place. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you, Chair. Um, certainly, I think, to start off with a key consideration in how the PPS approaches working with others in, in tackling long-standing issues, it has to be said, like avoidable delay, is recognising that every case involves an individual. Um, there's always a defendant in a case, but in many occasions a victim, uh, you know, and uh, we recognise the impact that delay can have on victims. Uh, several reports from the Criminal Justice Inspectorate, the Northern Ireland Audit Office, uh, the Sexual Offences Review by Sir John Gillan, have found there's no one single transformative change that can resolve the issue of delay, and that's primarily because there are so many separate parts of the system, each with different roles and responsibilities. However, I can honestly say there's a genuine collective commitment of myself and colleagues represented on the Criminal Justice Board to work together while respecting our, our lines of independence to both reduce delay, but also improve the victim experience. So perhaps the most important initiative to deliver transformational improvements in timeliness is the committal reform bill that's currently before the Assembly. 
So uh, I know there's a committee, you'll have already a detailed knowledge in this bill. I'll not go into to too much uh, of that. But if passed in its current form, we estimate it should allow for about 40% uh, of cases to be directly committed to the Crown Court. It will also abolish the need for oral evidence to be given at committal hearings and in all cases prosecuted on indictment. And this will have significant benefits in terms of reducing the time taken to get cases into the correct court venue for them to be managed. And I'll come on to speak about that later. However, committal reform on its own will not deliver the required improvements without the necessary infrastructure, process changes and changes in culture that also need to be firmly embedded. And I'm not going to try and persuade you it's going to be an easy task. Um, it's part of the reason why the abolition of committal proceedings in England and Wales took around 10 years to fully implement. So the PPS has worked with other stakeholders in developing principles known as the indictable case process, which if properly funded and implemented can deliver significant reductions in the time taken to deal with the most serious offending. And those five ICP principles are closely linked to what's already a place in England and Wales um, through better case management and are considered fundamental to the successful implementation of committal reform. And these include end-to-end -end case ownership, getting it right first time, proportionate case building, and fewer, more effective court hearings. When cases move much more quickly to the Crown Court after committal reform, there will need to be nearly early engagement, firstly between PPS and police, and then between PPS and defence, in order to focus on proportionate, reasonable lines of inquiry. It will not be possible to maintain the current practice of building files to sustain challenge from every possible angle without knowing what the defence do and don't take issue with in the prosecution case. So at the moment, ICP operates on a voluntary basis, which has limitations in the context of an adversarial trial system. It is my view that there must be a duty on both the prosecution and defence to engage, and that has to be supported by rigorous and consistent judicial case management. So turning now to the impact that COVID-19 has had on the criminal justice system, uh, as you've recognised, Chair, there's no doubt been disruption caused here, as it has in, in neighbouring jurisdictions. From the end of March until the summer of, of last year, courts were only able to deal with essential business. But from June 2020 onwards, we worked with our partner agencies, including Court Service and PSNI, to support the expansion of the operational court estate and to increase levels of activity. So between that period of March and June last year, PPS staff worked hard, and I do have to, at this juncture, pause to pay credit to the staff because they have been stretched to capacity at times in both restructuring our offices and redesigning processes to ensure that we could continue to provide essential services. So we therefore switched substantial parts of our, our office function to a remote footing virtually overnight, allowing prosecutors to take decisions on electronic case files at roughly the same rate as, as was occurring while they were in the office. And the strategic decisions to ensure the recovery of the justice system were coordinated through partnership working, which had oversight from myself and colleagues on the Criminal Justice Board. And this is supported by cross-system working groups at operational levels, which sit below that. We all liaise closely in submitting criminal justice recovery bids to allow us to work above normal capacity as regards the number of cases being dealt with in court. And I can talk more about that if, if members wish. As a result, we estimate that Magistrates Court business will have returned to pre-COVID levels by the end of this financial year. Crown Court work, by its very nature, takes longer to deal with and is more complex. And we estimate that will have recovered to normal levels of business by the summer of 2023, so around two years for the Crown Court work. And, but all of us on the Criminal Justice Board, I have to say, Chair, recognise the negative impact that this disruption can have on victims and witnesses. 
and we are ensuring that cases involving the most vulnerable are given priority. And that's not just us within the PPS. We've also been working with the judiciary to ensure that those cases are, are being listed uh, in the courts um, as soon as there's an opportunity to do that. It's important that victims are kept fully informed throughout the pandemic and the victim and witness carrying it, uh, housed within PPS have ensured that victim notifications were issued promptly. General updates were also issued via PPS social media platforms and we'll continue to work with victim representation groups through the Stakeholder Engagement Forum, which I, I mentioned earlier. To end on a positive note, uh, I believe there will be a lot of learning to take from how we in the wider justice system have adapted uh, throughout the pandemic by use of, of remote solutions. So I believe there are opportunities for efficiencies, which will also improve the experience of victims and witnesses. And these include remote evidence centres, remote administrative court hearings, the digital service of evidence, and in the longer term, moving to the digital service of summons. All of this is, is factored into updates of the digital justice strategy, which we've all signed up to in the Criminal Justice Board. It's a five-year plan. So I'll pause there, Chair, to take any questions member will have on, on any of those issues. Thanks, Stephen. And in terms of the Criminal Justice Board, do you get the sense that the, the collective approach that the Criminal Justice Board takes is helpful to see the, the positive outworkings? Because you, you did talk about the culture when it comes to the committal reform process, and clearly that will come, I, I would assume, more from... Uh, defendants uh, in, in, in that process as, a, as opposed to any other part of the system. So how, how do we ensure that collectively from the Criminal Justice Board, the judiciary, the, the other, all the other component parts that make up our criminal justice system, that they actually are moving in the right direction at the same pace and at the same time? Thanks, Chair. That's a I may say a very perceptive question about the role of the defendants because that they are not represented on the Criminal Justice Board and yes. that's something that uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there is something that we need to do moving forward not necessarily through the Justice Board but certainly engaging with the defence to bring them along right. is something that I'll come on to but um, I think the Criminal Justice Board is an extremely useful venue throughout the, the period of the pandemic we've been meeting monthly it's not usually as regular as that but the work that the Department of Justice has done in identifying where the bottlenecks in the system are, so they've identified five phases, and if you like, PPS sits right in the middle of this. So we, we sit at the heart of the justice system because we can influence how quickly police get files into us. You know, uh, we can give them advice about how quickly they move in. Um, what's needed on a file uh, will dictate the pace at which police can get files into us in which we are, are ready for prosecutorial consideration. But then thereafter, when they go into the courts, we can also influence um, how quickly the cases go through. But we can't do that in isolation, you know, because we need to work with police, we need to work with courts and the judiciary. So the Justice Board is the right forum. I think committal reform will be a huge culture shock because what it's going to really require is everybody to front load what's being done now. So whenever we get cases into the Crown Court, It'll not be possible, as I touched on, to build them in the same way. We're going to have to build cases in phases, if you like. So we will certainly have evidence that we think points to the guilt of the accused, the person we're, we're charging with an offence. And there will be some evidence available, but you'll appreciate the likes of forensics around yeah. DNA, mobile phones, take a long time to consider, whereas cases will be going into the Crown Court very quickly. So what we will need to do is work perhaps for the first time with the defence in a way that focuses on reasonable lines of inquiry 
And Michael might give a specific example as regards what's called disclosure management documents in, in rape cases. Um, that is going to require a huge cultural shift. It's going to require the defence to be uh, incentivised um, to engage earlier. I, I think it's going to require a mandatory duty of engagement. That's what they have in England and Wales. But we run the risk if we don't do that, Chair, if we don't not just change the culture but the, the procedures because the committal reform bill is only the vehicle to allow us to get cases into the Crown Court quicker. We need to have a huge supporting uh, infrastructure of which ICP is one part to actually make sure that we're not just making the Crown Court a, a remand court where there are more cases being just queued up there in front of a Crown Court judge because that's the most expensive part of the system. So if you look at England and Wales, they aim for a pre-trial preparation hearing where the issues between the prosecution and defence are narrowed. Um, and then they set a trial date. And there's an expectation that all the work that has to be done to get to that trial date is done without needing to come back to the court. There is provision to do that, if required. But certainly, it will take a long time to get us to that phase. And we will have to there'll be a lot of bumps along the road. But we have to start with a smaller number of cases first to, to iron those out. Um, but we do need to engage with the defence um, because I, I think when Michael gave evidence to the Justice Committee on committal reform, uh, we were hearing things from the defence representatives there that they weren't as cited as we were on, on some of the proposals, and that's something I think we do need to work on. Okay, we're going to bring in uh, Doug. Yeah, um, thank you, Chair, and, and, and thank you, um, Stephen. I mean, we had a really good conversation uh, uh, a month or so ago, and, uh, and it was, you know, a lot of what you're covering now, I, I know, but um, just on, on this committal reform and the issue of witnesses, um, I mean, I'm still sensing that, that witnesses to some quite serious uh, offences are still only being engaged by by email, and there's no way that anybody's nurturing through the system um, to come forward to give evidence on quite serious offences, and and that is a danger of of dropping people off who could be witnesses who are no longer available to act as as witnesses. Is there is there anything in this that that you can see that can improve how we of course deal with with victims and we look after victims, but how we really do deal with the, the witnesses in order to create the outcome that we need to achieve. Uh, no, thanks, Doug. There's a victim charter, but there is also a witness charter. You know, so a victim is a witness usually as well, but there, there are witnesses who aren't victims, um, I suppose, is the way to do that. So the, the witness charter does give people um, rights and entitlements about when, they, when and how they're contacted. Um, and we do work hard, the Victim Witness Care Unit. Um, one of the St. Jenny reports recently has suggested that there could be a more empathetic approach taken. Um, now, at the minute, uh, I would have to say the sheer number of transactions, when you're talking about issuing 900 decisions a week, we issue about 50,000 uh, prosecution decisions a year. Um, the sheer number of transactions make it, by necessity, quite a process-driven arrangement whenever you're contacting people. But we do try to have bespoke uh, means of contact. So whenever people say, some people want, for example, updates about court by text, some want by email, but what we have to, I think what you're steering me towards, Doug, is how do we make sure witnesses don't drop out because of, of delays that occur? And that's what's known as attrition. So it is something we're very alive to. We are trying to monitor um, whether that has been uh, an issue because of COVID. Uh, our early indications through the stakeholder engagement forum that we're on where we're, we're liaising with victims groups is that it hasn't been. 
And obviously we are, we have given instruction to prosecutors that where there are vulnerable, we know some groups of victim or witness are perhaps more likely to drop out because of delay than others. We are working hard to ensure that there is engagement with them that won't just be an email that is personal. Do they need any other support services, for example, is something we can help with. But we're trying to keep them engaged. But I think what I highlighted as well, we're trying to make sure that those cases are dealt with at the earliest opportunity. So where there is a vulnerable victim or witness, we are highlighting those cases and quite often asking the judiciary to bring those cases forward. Now, there has to be a balance of casework. You can't always have cases that are going to run for two weeks, otherwise you don't get through the volume. But some of the smaller cases where there are vulnerable um, victims, we're, we're asking to get, get moved in. And the judiciary, I have to say, have been very proactive in ensuring that um, the delay does not come uh, at the cost of losing victims in vulnerable cases. Yeah, and, and yeah, I get that as well, Stephen. And, and you're right that the delay is is part of the part of the problem. But I also think with some witnesses, it's it's the concern and the confusion about the whole process that they they go through. So I would imagine, you know, the, the victims of witness charter that people wouldn't necessarily know about is something that is given to the witness uh, immediately, so they understand their rights, as opposed to somebody's going to fire them an email saying you know, go on and find your rights here, but, but somebody hands it to them and gives them an, a, an explanation of what they, as a witness, is in, entitled to in some form or another. I think it's just something really important um, that we look at this in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the years and months to come. Uh, certainly, Doug, I'm happy to give you an update. Through the Criminal Justice Board, one of the uh, Criminal Justice Inspection recommendations is that we have a look at the Victim Witness Care Unit, uh, just on those very areas that you've mentioned there. So there will be changes there. There will be a new model put forward that is more about the care element uh, as opposed to just the contact. So there may well be developments there, Doug, that would be of interest and we'd be happy to come back to you whenever those have been finalised. You start. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Doug. Linda? Thank you, Chair. Um, one comment just on the back. that Doug actually raises an interesting point and I'm, I'm wondering, is that so much your responsibility or is it something that there should be a wee bit of focused funding on in terms of organisations that are there to support victims? So if it's a victim of a, of a race-related crime, then are we, are we supporting the organisations that would support that individual? If it's a victim of <coughs> domestic or sexual violence or if it's through victim support or men's advisory project, whatever it be, is, is that maybe something that we should be... Because they're probably better suited in terms of actually that, that bit of supporting the victim or witness through the process and because it's really just that constant reassurance of you're doing the right thing, this is why you're doing it, this is the difference you'll make and I'm not sure with the greatest respect to yourself that you're the best place to do that but I think it is a good point that, that yeah. Doug makes but, but maybe that kind of advice or recommendation <coughs> needs to come through what you, the work you are doing at the minute with you know, in terms yeah, of no, I think it's a fair comment. You know, quite often, because our role is the objectivity. It's not to mean we're, we're not we lack compassion. Yeah. We're dealing with people, no. but we're not the experts in supporting them. You're, you're quite right, Linda. We're not. Uh, we try to do as much as we can to be empathetic through the how we deal with them. But quite often, through the victim care unit, where we there's a needs assessment done. So if somebody does need signposted on for specialist support, or as you say, just the victim support, mm -hmm. making sure that they're there for them whenever they're needed, um, I would strongly advocate for those groups to be properly funded because I see the value they add. Uh, and we couldn't do what we do. I mean, victims are the lifeblood of the criminal justice system. 
if we don't have evidence from them, there's very few cases that will go forward. And I don't want them to feel any worse off because I'm engaging with the justice system to get a criminal justice outcome than they were at the start. So there is a lot of vital work that's done by those very different groups because different yeah. people maybe have different needs and there's no one group in particular that, I, that I'm advocating for. Uh, I, I think they all do a tremendous job. And we've certainly found out from the value in our stakeholder engagement forum is we get a better understanding of their needs and what we can do to improve. Um, but we couldn't do what we do without them. Yeah, no, uh, Linda, I'll just add maybe that out of the recommendation of the inspectorate and the sort of review of our victim and witness care unit that we're doing, um, what has been scoped is the opportunity potentially for victim support and ourselves to work a lot more closely together in recognition of the fact that they are the experts in this area uh, and they are trained with the skills. And so there's the potential um, for, you know, I think funding would be required, but to, make, to increase the number of volunteers who would then be embedded within the unit. Um, and then they would take responsibility for doing the needs assessments. Um, so hopefully you would get that sort of blend between um, making sure people are updated as required, because that is still an important part of, of victim care, um, but that those who are maybe uh, more trained or more expert in some of the softer skills and, uh, and understanding victim needs mm -hmm. um, have responsibility for that part, that part of the process. Thank you. And just a, a quick question. Just the PPS and PSNA's Working Together project. I'm not going to need to go through all the detail, but I suppose just the headlines of what's working well and what, uh, where he's finding the challenges. Are you managing to overcome those challenges or are there things that... No, we do. I mean, the, the Chief Constable and I appeared at the Public Accounts Committee a few weeks ago uh, jointly, and it was a good opportunity to say there is a strong working relationship, not just between myself and the Chief Constable, but at all levels of the organisation. And, and Michael and I, because we've been in the prosecution service quite a long time, would know quite a lot of the senior team and senior officers well. And I have to say, there are always um, issues arising from the independence, but we work together for the common good of ensuring that there's an effective prosecution service. So. I think um, one of the perennial problems, uh, and I'm sure if the Chief Constable is here with me would agree, is whenever the, the system isn't linear at the minute. Mm -hmm. So I'd, in an ideal world, police investigate. Um, we do give them advice, what's called a sort of investigative file standard. So there are written documents that say, look, in most cases, most run-of-the-mill cases that are frequently encountered, here's the type of evidence you would need to be submitting to the PPS. And then prosecutorial advices are, as a bespoke service then, uh, you know, in this particular case, what do you think is a reasonable line of inquiry? So that's the sort of engagement we have. What we're still finding, though, is when the file comes in, there are gaps in it. So instead of that coming in as a complete product from police that goes to a prosecutor who can then take a decision to prosecute and then get that into our administrative colleagues who put the file together for court, it has to go back to the police. What's called a decision information request, so there's information lines of inquiry not followed up, um, medical evidence is missing, there could be a variety of reasons, it goes back to police. Then, obviously, that causes an inefficiency because the prosecutor had looked at that in the meantime will have been looking at other files, and it might be some weeks, we'll have a target of 21 days for DIRs, but it might be weeks later before the information request comes back, and it might not be full. They have to look at that case again. And then what also happens is the... Um, whenever the defence do become engaged, which is not usually at that point, they may throw up things that ask, we have to go back to police and say, actually, we need you to look at that again. So we can only anticipate a reasonable line of inquiry, thinking the defence may well go down this. So where there needs to be a lot more focus on, on working together is that stopping that back and forth. And 
One of the ways we've found um, we've got a serious crime unit that deals with non-terrorist related murders and serious sexual offending. And we've got a gateway team approach in there. And it's, it's modelled loosely on what happens in England and Wales. They've got RAZO units, rape and serious sexual offence units, where they actually have police officers embedded in their RAZO units. But the whole premise of it is that there's a gateway team who, uh, say, haven't given police general advice about what's expected in files. If that isn't met when it comes in to the gateway team, it's not allocated to the prosecutor. Instead, it goes back to police with a very clear instruction about why the standards weren't met. And there's engagement on the police side. So the police have put gateway, I think it's inspector level, on their side, who not only looks at the file before it's sent in, so is reducing the number of cases that are coming in that, if you like, fail the submission test, uh, but they're also learning better about what's going wrong in these cases. So instead of us just speaking to one individual officer, and that officer may be learning about, okay, I'll know that the next time. At an organisational level, we are seeing an, an improvement and less DIRs being required. So what we're going to look at is that cannot be replicated elsewhere. It's working well for this unit. Uh, there's been investment in it from our end and from police. And that gateway approach might be one of the, the ways we can work together that will have very significant benefits for us both. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Sinead. Thank you, Chair, and I appreciate that the, the um, comments made around the care package have been well covered, and it's reassuring to hear um, about the, the victim care um, and reaching out to other bodies who have that specialism. So I suppose, if I may, I'll just make one uh, quick point. And uh, Stephen, you talk about just being, you know, object, you know, just objectivity in this, and your synopsis, I suppose, of the committal reform piece is something that um, was quite succinct, and, and it also spoke to the concerns I've had throughout this process in terms of is there a danger that we're creating a fast track and a fast lane that could work, but what we're failing to do is to recognise some of the day-to-day -day operational procedures that have to be gone through that will mean that that fast track just won't be used, you know, in terms of um, being able to turn over things like when we heard from the PSNI and you touched on it, uh, processing phone data, things like that. So unless we invest in the right places, the fast track may just not function as intended. Uh, thanks, Sinead. I mean, I, I, again, I think that's a very good question because that is a risk. Um, there's no doubt about it. The, the CPS got um, additional funding, about £80 million, and part of that was because they, in England and Wales there were new, more police officers brought on board, so there was an expectation to be more offences detected and files submitted to the, to the CPS. But it was also to recognise the complexity of the work uh, that was being done there and what was called uh, the explosion in digital evidence. And I think that is something that all jurisdictions are struggling with now. You know, police get a lot of data that has to be looked at. Uh, and some of the work Michael's leading on on disclosure is about, uh, I think I touched on it, we cannot get to the Crown Court with the same model of file. We overbuild files. Uh, whenever you get to the Crown Court, there's a high level of conviction. There's 80%, 86% conviction rate in the Crown Court. But there's only about 10% of those cases plead guilty at the first appearance, which is arraignment in the Crown Court. So what we need to do is bridge that gap, and we'll not be able to build files to that same... Um, size and standard under committal reform because they'll be in the Crown Court, in front of a Crown Court judge, uh, much sooner than they are now, 
and we do see that there's a difference in cases getting there between charge and summons. So in those charge cases, when they go in, the file won't be complete. And that's going to be working very differently with police, because we're going to have to focus on proportionate reasonable lines of inquiry. Get the defence in to help us identify what do you say they are in this case. And that is going to be different. Otherwise, we do run the risk that we're running very quickly to the Crown Court. But all the delays there are in the system now are still going to occur if we don't have all the other processes. So committal reform is not the silver bullet. You know, it allows us to get in there, and we've got time to work on all those other processes that are required, including the indictable case process, improving disclosure, digital enhancement. They all need to be separate pieces of work run alongside it. But I'm confident we can do that. I do think it's right that we try to do it in stages, and that's why not everything is being put up into the Crown Court under the first phase of committal reform. Uh, there's more cases than we had initially proposed. That's just to give us a larger sample, and, and to, in recognition it's taken us some years to get this far. Um, but I do think those issues can be resolved. I think one of the objectives of committal reform as well is that those cases that are going to plead guilty and even maybe where the defendant wants to plead guilty, that can be done very quickly. They'll get into the Crown Court quickly. Um, the fact that it is going to be a guilty plea, they'll have their advice from counsel, they'll be before a senior judge, and the guilty plea will be entered at an early stage, and therefore what might otherwise have been nugatory work um, is, is taken out of the system. And the idea is that will free up a little bit of capacity um, to focus on those cases where there's not going to be a guilty plea. Um, and all the examinations and all the forensics and so on need to be done. Um, just, okay. Yeah, I take that. I think that's a fairly good point, um, Michael. Yes, I can see how you know removing those does create capacity. But I suppose my fear is that even the capacity that's created may not be sufficient. And is there any danger of a case being pushed through this fast timeline and ultimately then? Once it's presented to court, it wouldn't be presented in the way it otherwise would have been because there wasn't sufficient time or resource to present that case as it should have been, um, and therefore it, you know, failing. So I, I remain to be convinced, but I, I, I know that other areas and jurisdictions have been ahead of us in this. Um, but I, I do take the point also about it being in, um, you know, taking it in, in pieces rather than a complete removal over. So. Um, but I appreciate it. I genuinely do. It has been helpful hearing your view on that today. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. And Rachel. Thank you, Chair. Um, and thank you very much for all your answers so far. Um, I'm just going to pick up on the committal reform bill, which was uh, mentioned there. And the committee's obviously signed off on its report um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I know that the committal reform was a topic of discussion, I believe it was the audit committee a uh, number of weeks ago. And I think at that meeting, it was the permanent secretary that stated that the implementation of committal reform would take some time, even if it is passed in this mandate. And I sincerely hope it will be, as we've spent a lot of time on it. Um, but I'm just wondering um, if you would agree with the permanent secretary's comments that it would take 18 months to two years to fully implement committal reform and can I ask if that is your understanding and we you know if when this bill is passed it would take two years for this uh, maximum or what changes would need to be happening in the PPS for example um, to be fit within that time frame? 
no, thanks, Rachel. I mean, I have to, to put that in context. I think committal reform is probably the single biggest change to the criminal justice system in the last 30 or 40 years. As I say, it took 10 years in England and Wales, so I know um, probably people will be disappointed or surprised about the timeframes that the Permanent Secretary mentioned, but there's a lot of other work that needs to be done. And until you see in the final, in 2015, when the bill went through, there were quite late amendments to it. And until you have the, the bill signed off and becomes an act, there's some phases of the planning, for example, around IT, around drafting court rules, or writing legal aid, that would need to be done whenever you see the final bit. And, and it will take some time to do all that, to get people trained in the new processes, which is why um, I think probably Peter, Peter May was talking about the backstop of two years. We'd be hoping, you know, we'd certainly be working as closely as we could to get that in before that. But it will take a lot of time. I know from this point in, some of the reasons I've explained already, there's a lot of other work to be done to support committal reform um, that we need to get to get to now. Once we know what the when the act finally looks like, um, we were concerned about late amendments. But this time round, it, it maybe won't be such a, such the case. Thank you. Um, well, obviously, we can't promise anything, but certainly not in, in our committee report anyway. Um, and just finally on committal reform before we move on. Um, you'd mentioned obviously about front loading and then you'd said about incentivising. Could you um, elaborate a wee bit more on what you mean about incentivising? I could be very direct and say money, but I won't. Um, <laughs> I think that the statistic I gave about the crime court rates, you know, being the conviction rates have been about 86%, but there's only about 10% um, at arraignment. <coughs> uh, obviously, the defence are entitled to challenge the prosecution case. And what we want to see happen, though, is that there is engagement by counsel in a case uh, at a much earlier stage, so they can help us narrow the issues. They're entitled to challenge us on the case, and I wouldn't at all try to deny the defendant the right to a fair trial, of which challenging the prosecution evidence is uh, a considerable part. But at the minute, what we are finding is a, lo a lot of practitioners are saying they're not paid to do that early work. You know, they're paid, senior counsel comes in at a much later stage. So we think they have to be incentivized. You know, I'm not saying uh, anybody gets paid more, but the time in which they get paid, the way it's structured, maybe needs to be looked at so that, and, and this is not, say, I haven't got statistics to back up um, any of this in terms of numbers of people, cases that we say would have been moved on quicker had the defence got involved earlier. But certainly anecdotally, from speaking to prosecutors, we have heard that that is one of the issues when it comes to the sort of voluntary engagement with the defence is sometimes a solicitor is reluctant to get involved without counsel being involved, and they're not usually involved till a later stage. So that, that's for us is one of the things that has to be incentivised is uh, if they're going, if going to be a duty of engagement, it has to be obviously met by financially. I think, I think one of the issues on this that I maybe mentioned when I gave evidence on committal reform was also that there's a current fee scheme um, that pays different fees depending upon whether somebody pleads guilty at an early stage or whether they plead guilty after a trial date has been fixed. And the fees that are payable in the event that a trial date has been fixed are considerably more. Um, and I think whenever we did some analysis around this, um, it indicated that they're on average approximately 50% more. So obviously getting a trial date fixed in a case results in a different type of plea with a, or different type of fee with a number of uplifts that can generate um, a lot more money. So obviously on in, in many occasions fixing a, a case for trial you know, is appropriate and all the work that goes, goes along with it. 
Um, but we just need to make sure that we have that balance right and that there aren't, within the legal aid scheme, um, I suppose, in, incentives um, to draw a case out any longer than it should properly be drawn out in order for the defendant to be properly advised, have proper disclosure so that they can take a, an informed decision regarding uh, how they're going to contest the case. Thank you, Michael, and um, thank you for that for those answers. No, in my understanding, I suppose just in terms of we we discussed this, and, and when um, defence counsel will be appointed is right, at, you know, from the very early stage now, with, when there's no committal um, stage. So certainly, um, we're more than happy to come back to that. Um, and thank you for that. But I suppose just on this theme, and it, it touches upon the last theme as well. But it, it's it's in relation to the um, the. The Black Lives Matter protesters in June last year, and, and the decision that was taken um, not to prosecute, which is one I f firmly welcome, um, and certainly um, I'm just I want to frame this one in terms of the delay, or you know, perceived delay, or time taken to reach decisions, and maybe this is part of a transformation piece, or, or, or um, part of the work that's ongoing within the PPS and, and the criminal justice system in general in terms of speeding up justice. But I know from your report on the Black Lives Matter protests and the decision not to prosecute that there were files sent from the PSNI to PPS between August and December. Um, and then there were three reported after challenging a fixed penalty notice um, and that the PSNI had administered in relation to, to the protests. Um, and obviously the protest was held in June. Um, and there were a number of months then between um, that and then cases or files being sent to yourselves um, and then nearly a year after the original event was the decision taken. Um, so I'm just using that as an example. Would there be any work or is there any work being done on determining decisions by the PPS, you know, to, to say basically that the test for prosecution isn't met after a certain time? Um, or is, is a year uh, roughly up between event or, or you know, even just under a year between files been passed over um, a kind of a normal time scale for yourselves or is it wholly dependent on the type of case? Yeah, Rachel, uh, you're, you're probably right there. It is dependent on the type of case. Um, I mean, probably with that one example you gave there, they, they were new regulations and probably took us and police a lot longer to get to grips with it and we, we got senior counsel's opinion. That wouldn't normally be the case in summary only uh, prosecution files. You know, you wouldn't normally go outside for senior counsel's advice on those, and we would normally be a lot quicker with those types of case. Um, so that is probably not a typical example of the length of time it takes us to deal with, with that level of offending. Certainly in the more serious and complex cases, which we are seeing an increase in, um, although our file numbers within the PPS have gone down from around 60,000, um, to around roughly 43,000, 44,000 from police, partly because police are using more out-of-court disposals, uh, discretionary disposals, community resolution notices. Um, and I welcome that. I think that's proportionate that police do do that, and we concentrate on the more serious work. Um, the Crown Court work, which is a uh, case for categories one to four in our language within the PPS, so your murders, your rapes, your drugs, your violent offences, those are all on the increase. I mean, the three areas that the Chief Constable uh, and I highlighted at the PAC were drugs, serious sexual offences, and violence against a person are at sustained high levels. And the system is struggling to cope with that. I mentioned the CPS funding. That was partly in response to the same issues being found there. So there, there is a lot of complexity in that casework, and it will take a long time to work through. Um, 
when I come on to speak about the funding pressures, or there are some cases I might highlight that a bit more, Rachel, just um, some of the particular issues we've encountered. Okay, no, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, oh, just out again, it would, um, I do absolutely welcome the decision taken, um, but I suppose from looking at the um, the year that the, the protesters were were having to go through, you know, and I'm waiting on decisions, um, just you know, for, for that kind of for that kind of charge. Um, but I'm 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 sort of I'm glad to hear that usually that that's not not the case. Um, for many again, when we're looking at why people don't engage or you know have any sort of issues with the, the criminal justice system, that's all all kind of part of it. But thank you for your answers. Um, bringing you just to um, what Linda had mentioned earlier on about domestic abuse training. Um, obviously, that's something the committee had majored on during our deliberations on the bill. Um, and I'm uh, welcome the the fact you're looking at specialist training and specialist prosecutors. Um, and just while we're looking at the stocking bill at the moment, while I have you here. Um, in terms of having specialist prosecutors for stalking legislation, is that something that the PPS is working on at the moment? Uh, no, no, not at the moment, um, Rachel. Obviously, the bill's uh, still going through, and I don't know well the volume. I don't know how many cases we'll be talking about there. Obviously, that is part of having specialist prosecutors as well. Will there be a need for it? Certainly, whoever is doing within the office will be trained, you know, specifically on the new legislation. And I would say we'll be working very closely with police to, sure, to ensure we can maximise the benefits of the legislation. Um, I do know it is you know, something that is considered not just from the point of view of, of a new offence, but it also highlights how serious this offence is, how serious stalking is. You know, it was previously viewed of another form of harassment, but obviously it's much more menacing than that. So I know giving it an individual um, recognition under the bill does increase the prominence of it, and that way we will be working with maybe specialist agencies as well, who do know more about the stalking, providing the sort of expertise. I'm sure they would be involved in any training of our prosecutors, and we'll be working very closely with police on that. Yeah. Just one thing to add to that. I think um, we'll obviously check this and come back to you, but there may be, and it may be part of the plans, or if it isn't, it's certainly something that we can consider for the domestic violence specialists that I mentioned earlier, who also deal with the stalking files. Um, as part of their remit, um, that, that's something that I would just need to check to come back to, to come back to you on. Um, but that's something that may, may already have been looked at, and if it isn't, it's something that we certainly could look at. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Michael. No, certainly would welcome any information on that. Um, Chair, finally for me, um, and again, just something that's in our packs for later on. Um, but this is on the um, sexual the report into the sexual offences order. Um, that there was commissioned by the department and recommendation 88 of the inquiry um, held that PPS should consider the benefits for um, of that organisation for a more systematic approach in maintaining guidance and the case management system used by prosecutors and keeping that up to date. So um, again, Chigley, just while I have ask you here or have you here um, in regard to those recommendations, and there were paragraphs 87 to 89. Um, do you have any initial thoughts on this recommendation and its implementation within the PPS? I'm afraid, Rachel, you've bowled me a googly there. I'm not too sure I, I have the answer to that one. No, I'm not sure I, I'm able to help out on this occasion either. I think we're going to up stumps on that one there. I, I'll certainly <laughs> take that away, Rachel. I'll look at that. There's been, I think, 253 recommendations in the Gillen Review, and we, we thought we had nailed all of them here, but I have to say, recommendation 88 wasn't one I looked at before I came up. So no. I'll certainly look at that, Rachel, and get back to you. It's, actually, it's in relation into the, um, the sexual offences order and the um, issue that had come up with the devolution of justice 
um, and with the, with those who had been charged for sexual offences uh, last year. Um, so it was in relation to that, but um, I can pick it up with you after this. It's no problem. Okay, okay. thank you. Well done, Rachel. Thank you for that. Okay, that brings us then finally, Stephen, to the the last part, which is the funding pressures and the legacy issue. So, if you want to make a few comments, and then we'll take. Yes, questions. thank you, Chair. Um, so, before I begin talking about legacy casework, I just want to say I'm very sensitive to the views on how this is dealt with by society, um, and most particularly through the criminal justice system, can differ. But what I have seen at first hand is that although views, even within families, about whether the prospect of prosecutions should be pursued are not always unanimous. Um, what is universally evident to me and all the prosecutors that deal with, with victims in this area is the very real pain and grief they all continue to suffer. So I want to acknowledge today that it is entirely understandable that many of those hurt or bereaved during the Troubles still want the same access to justice as if it had happened today. I can understand that. And from our perspective, what often causes additional anxiety and frustration is the amount of time taken for cases to be investigated, to be considered for prosecution, and then to progress through the courts. Uh, I think it's fair to say it's been well recognised and documented elsewhere that the prospects of conviction often diminish over time. And it's not my role to become involved in any political debate about the potential for a statute of limitations. But what I do want to ensure is that all relevant prosecutorial prosecutorial matters are considered as part of that discussion. In our response to the Northern Ireland Office consultation on the proposals for a historical investigations unit in 2018, we highlighted then that the system currently used is not delivering enough for victims, society and survivors. Uh, and I think it's a fair assessment that matters have not progressed significantly since 2018. And this has come as a, at a high emotional cost to those who have been seeking information and accountability, which has in turn has led to ongoing satellite litigation. And it might be helpful at this stage just to talk about the section within our office that deals with legacy work. It's the central casework section in the PPS. So central casework section is a team of 11 specialist prosecutors working under the supervision of an assistant director. Uh, the PPS has never been specifically resourced to have a dedicated legacy section. So central section deals with legacy cases along with all the other serious and complex casework, some of which I touched upon earlier. But it includes current terrorist cases and complex investigations such as that relating to Muckamore Abbey Hospital. As members will know, cases which are being progressed through investigation stage by either the PSNI Legacy Investigations Branch, Operation Canova, or the Police Ombudsman often take years to fully investigate, and in large part that's just due to their sheer complexity. These cases then filter into our central casework section, which while comprising highly trained and professional prosecutors, has not been resourced in the same way as the investigatory side. So to, to give you a scale of the complexity of some of these cases, I'll maybe just mention Canova in a bit more detail. So since being established in 2016, the inquiry team has seen considerable expansion of its terms of reference beyond its initial remit, which, is, which was to look at the activities of a former agent known as Steakknife. In his evidence to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee last year, the head of Operation Canova, John Boucher, indicated that in total some 236 murders were being investigated by his team. And Operation Canova investigators and staff currently number around 90, with an approximate annual budget of £6.5 million. And to date, there have been three sets of files submitted to the PPS in connection with the Operation Canova investigation. The first set of files contained nine case files relating to five murders three abductions and a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice, 
and these files are, are still under active consideration. There were also three further files which related to allegations of perjury. And as you may be aware, decisions not to prosecute were issued by my office in respect of these three files in October 2020. And just recently, last month, a judicial review challenging those decisions was dismissed by the Divisional Court. A second set of files contains reports relating to a further three murders and five abductions. And a third set of files recently received contained reports and evidence relating to a further six murders and four abductions. And this has increased the total volume of papers now received from Operation Canova to 80,000 pages. And further files are due to be received in October or November this year, which will involve a further nine murder files, one abduction, and one reverting the course of justice. So that's just one example of, of, of one aspect of Operation Canova. In reviewing the evidence gathered in the cases submitted to date, a number of complex legal issues have been identified. And to assist with our analysis, we've instructed senior counsel and two junior counsel who are currently working in conjunction with the PPS team. And that team comprises two senior prosecutors within our central casework section. So that's two out of the 11 we have who are working pretty flat out, I have to say, in trying to deal with, with that aspect of Operation Canova. And of course, I would like to deploy more prosecutors on a case of the scale and complexity of Operation Canova, but the limited resources that we have available and competing priorities within the office do not make that possible. And, and my grave concern, I have to say, is that those have been waiting a long time um, for at least the prospect of a justice outcome will grow increasingly dissatisfied and despondent at the pace of progress. I now face a situation where our central casework team is struggling to deal with the pressures of legacy casework and on-site the equally important offence types where there is an ongoing risk of threat and harm. And I did mention Muckamore Abbey as just one example and the first phase of the, the police investigation files being directed on. But just to give you an idea of the size of it, there were a possible 500 offences identified over a four-month period which involved police reviewing over 100,000 hours of CCTV footage. Um, so that's a massive case on its own, and it's only one of many. In fact, in, in total, there are about 107 cases. I mean, I'm, I'm giving you a figure here. It might have gone up or down in recent days, but certainly over 100 cases in central section, which are under current in consideration, and there's about a further 77, we estimate, before the courts. Uh, and not included in that uh, are some of the matters we're talking about under the health protection regulations, which have placed a significant additional burden on the section. There's about 420 files have already been directed on with a further 100 pending consideration. And while I'm raising the pressures within our central casework section, I go legally point to other areas across the business which are kept fully employed with sustained levels of serious and complex files. Those are those one to four casework types I mentioned. And that includes our serious crime unit and two regional offices uh, which deal with indictable casework also. And although overall, uh, the casework levels of the office have reduced, as I was saying earlier. The amount of the more serious casework has been increasing, and the complexity of same, coupled with the hugely increased amounts of digital material uh, that has to be reviewed, presents significant challenges, not just for my office, but also for other parts of the justice system. And as I mentioned, I think earlier, the Crown Prosecution Service has received additional funding in recent years in recognition of the increased complexity of their workload. But uh, in the PPS, in line with many other government departments, I have to say all of them, made cuts to operate within a reduced budget framework in recent years. So as it stands, we have a budget allocation of around 37 million um, for 21-22. And we do face a continued significant funding gap. I think it's about two and a half million uh, at present. And this has meant that even for our agreed capacity model, 
of 486 staff. We're having to use temporary staffing arrangements. I think we've around 61 agency staff or thereabouts. And this is leading to a cycle of lost corporate knowledge, the inability to meet timeliness targets, and uncertainty about planning for our future in the longer term. Uh, to turn to legacy in particular, then we bid for an additional £1.3 million to address the pressures of legacy casework and related satellite litigation alone. So that was for additional staff costs and for council. But we received £500,000, so, so less than half of that. And, and that, again, that's no criticism of our funders because they usually do try to work with us to, to get us what we need, but we're, we're some way short at present. This current cycle of year-on-year -year underfunding is putting huge pressure on the organisation. I'm concerned about victims who are being let down waiting for cases to be dealt with. And I'm also concerned about the impact on my staff who, who are being stretched to capacity. I'm seeing that on a daily basis. Delivering effective prosecution services when it comes to legacy casework is extremely difficult. And I would like to be able to match the bespoke victim-focused approach that the Operation Canova team is providing to many families. But to even start to do this will require sustained multi-year investment in the PPS for a legacy prosecution unit. Now, even if we get the money, I mean, it's hugely challenging to resource in terms of the number of experienced prosecutors that it will require. However, in my view, the current status quo is not an option. And both legacy investigation and prosecution has to be properly resourced as current arrangements are falling short. At the same time, Chair, I would also caution that even if fully investigated and properly considered by the prosecution, successful criminal justice outcomes will be small in number. Uh, and other mechanisms for delivering information and ensuring accountability for victims and their families will still be required. I look forward to discussing this matter further with members and answering any questions, and I do appreciate it, and thank you for listening. Thanks, Stephen. In terms of that, obviously the legacy branch and the police have the case sequencing model, which raises a number of issues in relation to how it operates. But as far as uh, and, and I, I take the point really in regards to your own staff because when you look at uh, the uh, nature of some of these incidents, they're, they're, most of them are, are very harrowing, particularly if you look at the, the issue in relation to Muckmore, where it is something that has happened in a relatively recent time, albeit spanned over a period of time, and it is harrowing what police officers have had to go through in terms of the, the video footage and so on, and, and what they've discovered. When something like more happens, how does it then uh, affect the sequencing that the office has in terms of how it has been dealing with, whether it's Canova or other legacy uh, uh, investigations? Well, what usually drives the uh, priority chair within the office is, is somebody charged. So if a case has been charged before the court, there is an onus on sort of to look at it first. The legacy cases don't tend to be charged cases. So those cases, they take a long time to investigate. Um, they're not usually somebody charged. You know, where police have charged somebody with a case, that drives the priority within the section. But I have to say, we don't view all, all crime serious in our minds and, you know, all work's essential that we do. Um, and that's why I suppose I'm making I'm outlining the seriousness of the situation here. I've never seen a time since I've been a prosecutor where our central casework section is so much under pressure from trying to balance that legacy casework, which is important work, with the other cases that are, are being dealt with. And I give Muckamore Abbey, but you know there's um, Upper Basia, which is a, 
an investigation in the new IRA. There's um, 10 people charged in that case. Up Farmic, which is about an organized crime gang activity, and I think there's 32 people reported and there's more to come. There are paramilitary crime task force, successful operations there and by the National Crime Agency. And these are all complex investigations um, that are coming into central casework section. And there's legacy cases before the court. And whenever cases are before the court, this is maybe what's not understood about the prosecutor's role. When we get a case in, we'll work with police, we decide to prosecute. Um, then that case goes into court, and quite often it's a long time before the prosecutor gets involved again in it. But whenever they do, that can be very time-consuming. So whenever you're facing what we are now with the COVID recovery, where we're trying to get more cases through the courts, that puts pressure on your prosecutors who are trying to deal with that additional court work, and at the same time, not let cases sit too long um, pre-direction stage, which is pre-decision to prosecute. So it is difficult to, but to balance that, Chair, I, I have to be honest. And um, when there's a victim involved in cases, that you know, it, it does concern me at the amount of time that people will have to wait, not just on the prosecution, but on the length of time it takes to investigate these matters. Um, we, we are seeing in cases involving legacy where people are dying, uh, where witnesses are dying, but also victims and their families, unfortunately, aren't there to see even the prospect of an outcome, uh, which I think is failing everybody, I have to say. And obviously, dissimilar to the arrangements for John Boucher and what's happening in relation to Operation Canova, you, have, you don't have a victim support programme, uh, which would, I, I assume from your comments, would be of help to try and navigate and help victims uh, in terms of understanding where all of this is at. There are victims groups, uh, and we do keep uh, the likes of Canova, we, we keep the families informed. We, we wrote to them in February, and I think there's another letter that's going out this week. Um, and I have to say, the, the approach taken by the Operation Canova team is very victim-focused. So they, they do make regular yeah. contact with them, and there is good updates given. Um, again, as I said at the outset of this, for me, once I focus on the integrity of the decision-making, I realise that um, that's not necessarily where the focus of the family is. You know, they want not necessarily uh, a justice outcome, not all of them are of the same voice on that, and there are very many victims groups, but what they want is information, yeah. truth and accountability. And, and where there is a deficit, I have to say, Chair, um, that we would see quite often if a, an inquest, for example, um, sometimes following an inquest, a file is sent for criminal investigation, or following an inquiry is sent for criminal investigation. There are issues that arise because of the difference between an inquest and a criminal process. So for a start, an inquest is inquisitorial. Um, it's about trying to get to the truth, whereas a criminal justice process is adversarial. It's can the prosecution prove this uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, there are issues that go into an inquest proceedings where there, the concerns about admissibility just aren't the same. Um, the judge doesn't have to, uh, uh, sorry, coroner sitting in an inquest can look at material that whenever it comes to the prosecutor may not be available for that prosecutor to use because of rules around admissibility. And we're saying that in particular uh, in cases that involved the state actors, um, military personnel investigated by the Royal Military Police between 1970 yeah. and 1973. That was a factor in the ANC ruling yeah. a few weeks ago. So there, there is... I have to say, a perception that people um, may get truth from the criminal justice process, that I think that itself 
creates expectations that can't always be delivered because it's not what the criminal justice process is about. Um, as I said, I said, I can understand why people will want the opportunity for a criminal justice process, but I have to caveat that um, the numbers of prosecutions will be small and convictions will be small, and that will take a long time. And what I, what I don't want is for people to not have access to justice and accountability waiting for that to happen. Yeah. You know, I do think we have to look at everything on the table here about the whole package of measures uh, and not just the prospect of a criminal justice outcome. Thank you. Linda? Thank you, Chair. Um, you get no argument from me on that. I mean, I was part of the, the team that negotiated Rainstorm at House whenever, um, from 2016, obviously not, not prior to that, but and I, I still believe that that package of measures, while not perfect, and, and certainly not, well, you know, it's not a, a Sinn Féin bill, but it, but it gave the best opportunity for as many people as possible to get what they, what they needed, but, but it wasn't going to meet the needs of everybody either. I don't think anything we do will, and I think we have to be honest with people about that. But just in relation to the current um, proposals, because looks like Stormont House has been through out the window by the British government, just irrelevant, regardless of the fact that 17,500 people here, many of them victims, responded to it um, and they've decided they'll, they'll make up their own proposals and see how that goes. So ha has there been any engagement f by the British government with yourselves around that and the impact that that would have on the on the judicial process and on, on, on the prosecutorial? There has been recent engagement but up until the announcement there wasn't any so I don't have... Um Sort of any insight. I didn't have any additional insight, or you know, than, than you would have had as a politician about that. But since the uh, announcement in the Queen's speech, we have had engagement with the Northern Ireland office, and I think we're trying to. Oh, we're again, as I said at the outset, we are independent, so we're not part of you know formulating government policy on this, or, or is that no, it's really just the as you say the operational implications. So what, if they, what does that mean for, they for did that. prosecution? Yep. So, so what would it mean for in-flight cases? Mm -hmm. uh, what would it mean for cases still when our office not yet decided on? That type of thing we can help with as part of a package of options. So say, not my role to advocate for any position, uh, but we do engage with them in, in that remit, and I'm comfortable within that space. You know, That's trying to assist and inform, a bit like me appearing here, is ensure that debate is properly informed. Because I, I do want to be realistic whilst I appreciate... Um, the desire for many to see a justice outcome in these, and I can fully respect that. Um, I think the chair of the Northern Ireland Audit Committee um, a few weeks ago on The View said that you could be looking at 15 to 18 years, and that's not, that, you know, I have to say that time frame, whenever you look at <coughs> Up Canova being five years old now, and it is only still sending in the US the first remit of its terms of reference, and uh, is still working on that. The time frames are going to be very long, you know, and by that stage, in 20 years' time, you, you would need to have a system that was looking at um, cases in maybe in date order or something, because it is possible after many years to get a conviction in a case, and I, I want to emphasize that. We come to every case with an open mind, and if there's evidence there and the test for precaution is met, we'll bring it. And we've seen that with historic sexual abuse cases, but the prospects of conviction do diminish over time, particularly with legacy, where there are going to be issues around admissibility and not having witnesses available is not going to make it any easier. So my concern would be we've already lost a few years from 2018 when there was that consultation and we're no further on. I say we haven't been able to progress any plans for a sort of a sort of separate legacy unit 
within the PPS. That will take a long time to set up even if we get the money tomorrow. Uh, it's the length of time it's going to take to work through all those cases, how they're prioritised, are very significant challenges. Uh, and I'm just worried about not doing something in the interim. It's continuing to let people down, Linda. That's basically where I am. And I suppose that's where my concern is, because obviously part of these proposals is the statute of limitations. So, I mean, that, that's obviously a, a concern for me. It's a statute of limitation for state actors only. And even in terms of that, it is, as far as I can gather, for, for British Army only, not that doesn't even include... Um, my understanding of it was, and say I haven't been directly involved in, in any groups that's meeting with NIO, I have had general discussions. I, I don't think it's just the state actors. I think the statute of limitations is really a, a way of saying of drawing a line, if you like, under that's that. I don't think it would only be. No, I don't think it would only be. Now, obviously, um, you would hope that there would be more information coming. You know, at the minute, uh, we're only involved in sort of trying to set the scene as and how many cases are we dealing with? You know, what cases are in flight? What would happen if they didn't proceed? Um, there'd be other things that maybe be looked at, like there's already the possibility of applying for any offence between, I think it's 1973 and 1998 for um, two-year sentence reduction. You know, whether that be reduced to zero was something else that we heard being floated. Um, but I have to say there's been that many iterations of what to do with the past. You know, at one stage, they were talking about an amnesty for one side only. And they were talking about, you know, somebody else having to say on whether it's in the public interest to prosecute rather than me, and I would have been opposed to that. So I'm not surprised there's confusion about what the exact state of play is, but my understanding is it's not just on one side that they were talking about that. And, and has there been any then, I suppose I'm specifically thinking about those cases that are sitting with you that are potentially either on your desk waiting to go to be prosecuted yeah. or currently being prosecuted, has there been any conversation with those families or in the absence of clarity can you not have those conversations? I'm yep. wondering that yeah. because these families are in the middle of a prosecution process, they may well, the British government will, may well bring this legislation through which means that those prosecutions effectively will, it, it will no longer be legal to, yeah. pr to continue with the prosecutions and that just stops dead. Are families being prepared for that because that's my, that's my fear, and I mean families across the board, from whatever, from whatever community or whoever, whoever yep. at whoever's hands they lost their loved ones, they're in the middle of a prosecution process, and that that may well just stop dead. Is anybody preparing them for that? Well, certainly, I, I fully accept what you're saying. It'll be a huge shock, and I've already talked about the huge emotional costs. You know, the current system is having on people for it to be suddenly seen that we're putting everything into reverse overnight. Um, would be catastrophic to, to many of those families, I, I am sure. We are proceeding, this is where the independence is a strength, we're proceeding on the basis that uh, until the legislation is passed and we are told otherwise, because we, we follow the law as it is now, we'll continue to put cases before the court where the test is met, we'll continue to prosecute cases we're already before the court in the same way. You know, We are not preparing for any easing down or anything. Say, a bid for resources for legacy and continue to do that until there is something which says that is not the way to go. That was actually going to be my final question, but you've just answered it. So within your office, because it would be understandable, I, I would understand it like if you were sitting thinking, I have Muckamore here sitting you know, with, with people potentially going to be prosecuted, or I have something here that's ready to go, but am I going to be halfway through this? You know, and, and somebody come in and say, that's it, stop, 
end of story? No, we're, we're, is that valuable use? We're not making any assumptions here at all because, say, there's been many sea changes yeah. uh, in the direction of travel here. Um, and at the minute, we are just proceeding, say, in fairness to all the families. And we have had correspondence from at least one group asking us that very question. Um, and absolutely, we are proceeding uh, as we are now. Say, my concern is where those cases are sitting within central casework. They are, I wouldn't use the word competing, but the same prosecutors are having to deal with cases that are um, before the courts in charge now, where there is still a potential threat from terrorists or organised crime or whatever it be, and cases where there maybe isn't considered to be that threat, but we are taking that work no less seriously. We are trying to progress it as best we can, bearing in mind that sometimes priority has to be given to the other cases because they're before the court. Can I just ask one final very quick question? In, in your engagement with the, with the NIO, have you made that, that very point to them that they need to let you know as soon as possible what exactly are their plans because you have a responsibility as PBS to engage with those families yeah. and engage with the groups and organisations that you talked that, about. As that, well. that is exactly the point we're making, that we would need plans to be able to prepare, same way as we would if they were going to decide to implement Stormont House Agreement in full. Yeah, we need a plan to prepare for that. If they're going to, say, move away from that, uh, we have a lot of victims and families already engaged with us in the process, as does Operation Canova and the Police Ombudsman and Legacy Investigation Branch. So all those views have to be taken into consideration, I think, by the government whenever they're deciding what to do. And that's why I would rather engage in the comfortable space and I'm not there to assist with policy development or influence that, other than for them to understand the impact it would have uh, on the prosecution and the, the families who are engaged with us. Thank you. Just before, Thank I go you, to, okay, and, uh, just before I go to Sinead, would, would there be a breakdown in, in terms of, do you have that figure now? If you look at uh, legacy investigation branch in the police, yeah. they can break down the number of legacy cases, uh, the numbers in terms of uh, terrorist organisations, uh, police and, and so on. So would you have a breakdown of those by uh, number and by category? And well, would that be possible to be What we do you have, Chair, not uh, available to share with you right now, but we do have the, since about, I think, 2012 is it, Michael, we've kept like a legacy table and right, that's only okay. because we were getting so many questions about them it's not that we were trying to you know balance yeah. what prosecutions we were bringing on different sides we were just getting so many we thought we'll keep that separate so they're not a huge number the legacy cases are not a huge number of that central case work work right, most okay. of it would be um i don't know michael whether is it a rough guess would it be a quarter uh, maybe yeah. would it? Is uh, a... I, would, I would say potentially even less than that i think currently in terms of live cases i think we have about 16 in central casework section. Um, and when I, the figures that the director is referring there to in terms of going back to 2012, um, and I think it's, that, that figure might be, and we'll follow this up specifically in relation to decisions taken, I think the number we're talking about is 37, 38 right, okay. over that period, right. and with maybe about 16 um, sort of on the books at the moment. Okay. okay. Uh, Thank you, Chair, and um, thanks, um, Stephen, for that. And uh, to be fair, um, Linda did cover the point there I wanted to ask, and I won't go over it just for the sake of it, but it, whilst there's maybe nothing new being said here, it's still hard on the ears, I suppose, in terms of the timeline, particularly for families of those victims. But it, um, it is reassuring to know that you are still focused on, you know, um, in the absence of any other direction, uh, to if there is a potential prosecution to push ahead and gathering that 
evidence of that just to put on the record. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. And finally, Stephen, uh, in terms of, of the funding piece, uh, obviously most organisations would always benefit from additional funding, but whatever the decisions may be made, are you, and I'm set that aside in terms of the legacy piece, but as currently things stand, do you believe, given, uh, and I take the point you make in relate to the overall number of cases may have come down, but the pressure that is all on your staff, what do you see as being the most vitally important additional amount of funding that would be required for PPS to even deal with what, it's, it's a broad term, but the normal day-to-day -day work of the service? It's a very fair question, but one that's quite difficult to answer because if I break it down, Chair, our uh, turn is about 24 million of it is staff costs, so that's fairly fixed. So that's our headcount's meant to be 486. Now that has reduced from 585 uh, as part of the, the cuts that I talked about before. Yeah. Um, but we did try to ensure that the prosecutors who are working on the more serious cases remained at a fairly constant level throughout those changes. Um, I think there's about four million pounds in accommodation costs, and then the fluctuating bit, if you like, is what we spend on council because it's demand-led. You know, so the number of cases that actually get before a court, yeah. and then we have to pay council to work on them varies year to year. So that's usually between five and six million pounds a year. What is really hampering us is not being able to plan beyond a single year. So we haven't been able to staff up to the headcount of 486. We've got too many agency staff. Um, another reason I'm not able to give you an accurate answer just right now is the impact of, of COVID. Um, we have bid separately for uh, additionality to work up to 150% of our usual capacity in the Crown Court, which will help in the short term, uh, probably over a two-year period in dealing with the additional cases going into the Crown Court. But if you like, it's masking the pressures that there are on some of the sections. Um, and I do feel, as regards the likes of our serious crime unit, we either have to radically change the processes uh, yeah. whereby there's not as much work going to them, which I can't, since it's been a, a trend year on year of, of the cases coming in at that level, or we need to look at the funding position again. As I say, we, we've been trying our best with what we had because I appreciate you know, justice sits there probably below health and education in a lot of people's eyes, and I appreciate we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I'm not coming here um, trying to diminish the pressures there are on the, on the budget, but I am concerned now that we're starting to see the creeks that came into the CPS and what really precipitated the CPS being funded was cases going wrong. And I don't want that to happen in our organisation. I think we started off talking about public confidence. That's my big worry, that that would um, start to suffer if we, we don't see some aspects of our work being funded uh, in a different way. Okay, well, Stephen and Michael, thank you very much for, I think, what has been very open and a transparent uh, presentation to us on a wide range of issues. And, and I appreciate, as, as a chair, and my first time having this opportunity, uh, the, the fact that you have been willing, both of you have been willing to come and to engage with the uh, committee. And we look forward to continuing that. Uh, engagement. So thank you very much. And thank you very much, Sharon. I'm sure okay. Michael and I, we, we've uh, appreciated the time you've taken with us as well, and we look thank forward you. to engaging with you in the future. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you.
Okay, members, uh, if we can then move on to our uh, other agenda items. And we'll now go to item agenda five, which is the damage, damages return on investment bill. And it's an update on the oral evidence session. And this is at pages 132 to 137 of your pack. At the meeting on the 20th of May 2021, the committee agreed to schedule nine oral evidence sessions with a range of organisations on the damages return investment bill. Eight of the oral evidence sessions have been completed, but it is proving difficult to identify a suitable date for the proposed oral evidence with the Institute of Faculty of Accuracy. It is therefore proposed that the committee has uh, if the committee has any specific questions to put to the Institute or any areas of the Institute's written submission that require further information or clarification, a written response could be requested instead. Are members content of, to that approach? I have one quick question just Linda? to put yep. to them, and, and, and I'm happy for a written right. response. Right, and okay. I think the oral evidence sessions have been well, well covered, to be, <laughs> to be fair. Um, thank you, Chair. It's, it's just to ask them what is the material difference in their view between a mixed portfolio of low risk investments and a risk free rate of return and okay. this is in their view okay. that we want that. And, and if we could then uh, uh, if there's any other members want any other specific questions to be asked of the faculty if those were submitted then we could actually formally write to them and uh, put those questions to them if members are agreed that we use that as a, a means of trying to bring this to a conclusion. Content? Thank okay. you, Jerry. Thank you for your help on that. Uh, then that brings us to the item six. Are you happy enough, uh, Christian, that covers that issue? Yes, could I just check um, if members are content then that we will send a summary of the issues raised in the written and oral evidence to the department for a written response? Oh, yes. Yeah. And then we'll um, arrange the oral evidence session. And I just wanted to highlight to members that um, the current bill timetable was indicating that we were hoping to um, have that done um, and possibly schedule the oral evidence session with the summer recess. But given the volume and complexity of the evidence received, and also due to your current staff absence, it's going to take us slightly longer. So we're going to schedule that for the first meeting back in September. Is that okay, okay with committee members? Okay, content? Fine. Okay, thank you. Thanks, members. Uh, agenda item six, the Domestic Abuse and Civil Proceedings Act. Uh, updated on due diligence process and implementation of the financial eligibility waiver for victims of domestic abuse. And you'll find that at pages 139 to 148 of the pack today. And at the meeting on the 13th of May, uh, the committee considered an update provided by the department and the working work being undertaken to assess and quantify the representative risks and develop a plan to give effect to the legal aid provisioned in the Domestic Abuse and Civil Proceedings Act and agreed to request a timetable or a timeline for the conclusion of this work and a further update on progress at the end of September. The Department has now provided further information on the position regarding the strategic outline case and has indicated that the Legal Services Agency is considering the necessary administrative arrangements and the Department is formulating options for the eventual test 
the evidential test that must be passed to assess the waiver and the size of the financial contributions to be made by legal aid victim. So, could we just get the views of members on whether they are content to note the additional information provided by the Department or whether any further information or clarification is required at this stage prior to the receiving a further update uh, on progress at the end of September? Are we content? Content to note. Okay. Chair, could I just come in there, please, with yes. one point? Shania, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Chair, I just noted at the end of the letter and um, the department referenced that they're engaging with stakeholders to consider the development of options. And I would just be eager to know who those stakeholders are. Okay. Um, Rachel? Uh, you're still muted, Rachel. There's always one. Um, yes, Chair, sorry, thank you for that. Um, just like Sinead, I had a number of qu a question on, on who the stakeholders are that they're going to engage with. I would, I would welcome some information on who that is. Um, also, in terms of the evidential test as well, what kind of evidential test are they looking at and where is that coming from? Um, and then finally, in terms of the committee's request to get a September update on this, um, I note that that is not referenced in the letter. So are we going to get an update in September on where the department is at on this? Um, I have a number of questions about the contents of the letter, but I will reserve that to September. Okay, have enough, Kristen. You've got those and we can write to the department. Okay. Thank you for that. That brings us to item seven, which is a statutory rule, rules of the Court of the Judicature, Northern Ireland. I'll get that right. Yeah, Northern Ireland Amendments 2021, and that's at pages 150 to 180 of the pack. And this statutory rule makes amendments to the Order 97 of the Rules of the Court of the Judicature to enable applications in non-contentious probate cases to be made online replace the sworn affidavit with a statement of truth and make changes to the, mar uh, the marking of exhibits. And at the meeting on the 11th of February 2021, following consideration of further information provided by the Department, the Committee agreed that it was content with the proposal for the statutory rule, which is subject to the negative resolution procedure. And at the meeting on the 3rd of June, the Committee noted that the drafter had made three minor technical additions to the rule since the Committee had considered it. And the additions ensure that Order 97 is as up-to-date and accessible as possible and do not change the nature or the policy intent behind the rule. The examiner of statute rules has no issues to raise with regards to the technical aspects of the rule. Are we content with the statutory rule? Content. Chair, can I uh, just read Shania. Yes. Yes, thank you, Chair. I am content, but it, it's just when this has appeared... In front of us, and um, there's a question running in the back of my mind at all times, and I welcome because it's one of those things where you see, and um, I suppose all legislation and, and all law, uh, law are supposed to be coming um, more into the digital age and era, and rightly making things more accessible to people. But also, I do wonder, in terms of the new accessibility, is there a reflection in any costings uh, to the applicant? Because obviously the need to present and have interview would have incurred costs and um, human resource, if nothing else. Is there going to be a reflection and a reduction of cost for these non-contentious, simple probate cases? And, and I, I don't want it to stall anything, but I just think it would be good to have on record okay. that it's, a, it's being considered. 
Well, we can write and ask uh, from the department to seek clarification of your contempt. Okay, we, we'll do that. Uh, if, so, if the committee is content then uh, with the rule, uh, we put the question: The committee for justice considers statute, uh, statute rule 2021-129, the rules of the Court of Judicature, Northern Ireland Amendment 2021, and has no objection to the rule. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Uh, item 8 is the draft statute rule in the Justice Act, Northern Ireland 2016, relevant benefits, Northern Ireland uh, Order 2021, and that is contained in your packet, pages 182 to 209. This statute rule will add universal credit to the list of benefits from which deductions may be made by the fine collection service located within the NI courts and tribunal service for the payment of a fine or other penalty. Legislative safeguards limit the maximum amount that can be taken to minimise hardships. At the meeting of the 8th of October, following consideration of further information provided by the Department, the Committee agreed that it was content with the proposal for the statute rule, which is subject to the draft affirmative resolution procedure. At the meeting of the 20th of May, the Committee noted the information provided by the Department on the reasons for the delay in bringing the rule forward. The Department has confirmed that there has been no change to the policy content of the rule since the SL1 was considered by the committee. The examiner of statute rules had drawn attention to required clarification to the drafting of the rule in her report, and this has been made by the department by way of a correction slip laid to the business office on the 8th of June. The final corrected version of the SL5 draft statute rule and explanatory and financial memorandum which were received after the meeting pack was issued, can be found now at pages 11 to 18 of the table pack. Are members content with the statutory rule? Just take a note. Yes. So if the members are content with the statutory rule, we'll put the question. The Committee for Justice considered the draft statutory rule, the Justice Act Northern Ireland 2016, relevant benefits order Northern Ireland, 2021 and recommends that it be approved by the Assembly. And obviously we will outline the views of the committee in the debate on the statute rule which is currently scheduled for the 29th of this month. That brings us then to the statute instrument item uh, number nine on our agenda, the Market Surveillance Northern Ireland Regulations 2021 mis uh, miscellaneous SI. And this is at pages 211 to 214 and pages 20 to 54 of the table pack for the relevant information. Department has written advising that the Minister of Justice has received a request from the UK Government to agree to the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy making a statutory instrument under powers conferred by Section 8C of the European Union Withdrawal Act. Uh, 2018, the SI issues that EU market surveillance and compliance of product regulation uh, 2019-10-20 are directly applicable EU regulation which applies from the 16th of July uh, 2021 can be operative effectively in Northern Ireland. The SI engages the responsibilities of a number of NI departments, including the Department of Justice, which has two pieces of legislation that fall under the requirements of the regulation, both of which relate to explosives. 
The Department has indicated that explosives, due to their nature, are highly regulated and does not anticipate significant burden arising from the SI. The Justice Minister has advised that the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy that executive agreement is required before she can agree to its request. The Department of Agriculture Rural Affairs will bring a paper on this to the executive for consideration. Committee PAC issued the, de uh, the Department has written indicating, sorry, since the Committee PAC was issued, the Department has written indicating that the SI was laid in draft on the 10th of June 2021. And the Minister Paul Scully MP intends to write to all relevant Northern Ireland ministers to provide an update on the decision to lay the SI. The correspondence is at page 20 to 54 of the table pack. The Department will keep the committee updated on the matter. So the information on the statute instrument, unless there's any further information or clarification, we just note this information from the Department. Thank you. Item 10, which is a SL1, the, process of, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, Application of the Police and Criminal Evidence, Northern Ireland Order 1989, Amendment Number 2, Order Northern Ireland 2021. And that information is found in pages 216 to 223 of the meeting pack of the papers today. The Department of Justice is proposing to make a statutory rule which will be subject to the negative resolution procedure to make four minor drafting amendments and to add a new schedule to the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002 application of the Police and Criminal Evidence Northern Ireland Order uh, 1989, Order Northern Ireland 2016. The rule will assist uh, practitioners in the, uh, in the reading and application of the relevant articles of the 1989 order when exercising relevant powers under the POCA, including the new powers which are due to take effect on the 28th of June uh, 2021, when the range of Northern Ireland provisions of the Criminal Finance uh, Act 2017 commence. Are, they, are we content with the proposal for the statute rule or whether there's any further infor information or clarification required? Any member of any issues? No. Okay, thank you. Uh, item 11, uh, addressing antisocial behaviour, uh, proposed legislative powers and non-legislative initiatives. The information in relation to this is on page 225 to 291 of the PAC. The Department undertook a consultation to review the current criminal legislation framework to tackle antisocial behaviour, including on-street drinking on April 2018, and published a summary of the consultation responses in December 2019. The Department has now provided an update on this review and broader work streams being taken forward under the Community Safety Framework to address antisocial behaviour. A total of nine proposed legislative powers are being considered by the ASB Delivery Group and the policy responsibility sits across Department of Justice, the Department of Communities, Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs. Details of the current position in each are set out in the papers together with the further information on the range of non-legislative initiatives also being progressed. The Department will keep the committee informed of any key developments arising from the work of the review of the ASB legislation. 
Are members content to note uh, the information provided by the department? And if there's any other further comment to be made? Rachel. Thank you, Chair. Um, I, would just, I, I note the department's response and that this does fall in a number of departments, but often with these types of issues that you know are across, across all our communities in Northern Ireland, and uh, no doubt um, every MLA's uh, constituency of the office and inbox will be filled with ASB issues or issues to deal with um, bylaws, such as you know, what can't be dealt with by local councils. So I appreciate that there, this is a big, big bit of body of work. I suppose this has been going on for years now. We've had this um, this review and, and the consultation, and it's now 2021. And, and I, I, I get that there is clearly no means that these issues, especially the legislative issues, um, will not be going through in this assembly mandate. But I suppose if we could write maybe to the department to see if there's an intention to have that legislation ready for a new Minister of Justice uh, coming in after next year's election. I'm mindful just of, of what's going on in my constituency at the moment with ASB and bylaws on alcohol, being drunk on the streets. I know that's the same in the Holy Lands, especially in Belfast. Um, ongoing issues with communities and community consultations, which haven't uh, wasn't didn't make its way into the consultation. So I suppose just trying to get this um, fast-tracked a little bit as much as possible because we have had this for, for a number of years now. Okay. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Rachel. And Linda? Um, I agree with a lot of what Rachel's saying. I suppose just my, my only caution would be I don't want this to be done fast. I want it to be done right. I think that it's important that we don't potentially criminalise young people. Anti-social behaviour is anti-community and we should all stand up against it. And I certainly do all day, every day in, in my own community and call it out for what it is because it's it's crucifying your own community, the people around you, potentially your own families included. Um, so I do think that it's important that we do deal with the issue with the issues. I don't disagree with Rachel's point in in writing to the Minister. I think it's important that we do get a, a response back in relation to that. But I do want to ensure that whatever whatever we do around this stuff that we get it right and that we make sure that we are working I suppose what has just been outlined is exactly where it's at, that it runs across departments. It's not necessarily uh, you know, a justice no. response to, no. to anti-social behaviour, but it has to be part of it. There's no doubt because there, are, there comes a point where it goes over into the, yeah. the criminal aspect as well. So. Is there also a, a way whereby we, Christian, could get an update in regards to where this sits with the other committees, mm -hmm. communities and the Department of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs? Yeah, we'll yeah. um, yeah. we'll refer right. what we've got to those committees right, okay. um, and maybe ask them if they could um, ask their departments for yeah. updates. And we'll also write to the department on the back of what Rachel has, has requested and, and see what the, the, the response from the department is. Okay, thank you for your help on that. Brings us to item 12, the report into the legislative error the Sexual Offences Northern Ireland Order 2008, update on the implementation of the recommendations. And this is found on pages 293 to 426 in uh, the PAICS today. 
At the meeting of the committee on the 22nd of April, the committee considered the response provided by the department, the recommendations in the report of the review of the lessons arising from the legislative error within the Sexual Offences Northern Ireland Order 2008, which led to the Public Prosecution Service setting aside a number of convic convictions for certain sexual offences prosecuted between 2009 and 2017. The response indicated that the Minister agreed a total of 10 principal recommendations, seven of which are mainly for the Department of Justice and the wider uh, NICS policy community, and three which are for consideration by other stakeholders, including the PPS, the Executive Office and the Office of Legislative Council. The Department set out the implementation steps it has taken to date and indicated that some replies remained outstanding from relevant organisations and it could provide a further response in due course. The Department has now provided an update indicating that an enhanced guide to tackling recurring policy issues in legislation has been published by the Office of Parliamentary Council and will be circulated within the Northern Ireland Civil Service. The Department is also waiting on the responses from the PSNI PPS and the Office of the Lord Chief Justice regarding the current situation in relation to the implementation of the recommendations at paragraphs 87 to 89 of the report. So this is really to note the update provided by the Department and request a further update on the other three recommendations from the Department receives the responses from the PSNI, the PPS and the Office of the Lord Chief Justice if we're happy with that approach. Okay. Uh, might be useful to, is it possible, Christine, to uh, they make reference there to the Office of Parliamentary Council has uh, uh, published enhanced guidance. Would be possible to get a copy of that and make it available to members? Okay. Thank you. Item agenda 13, which is correspondence. There are five items of correspondence uh, at pages 49 to 544 of the meeting pack and one item at pages 56 to 59 of the table pack. Uh, just draw your attention to one of the items on the correspondence sheet and then in the table pack members will have an opportunity to com comment on any other items uh, of the correspondence in which they have a particular interest. But at item 2, page 431 to 492, it's correspondence from the Minister of Justice and the Minister of Health advising that the consultation analysis report outlining the findings from the recent consultation on the establishment of a regional care and justice campus for children and young people was published on the 16th of June uh, 2021. The committee had previously agreed to hold a joint committee meeting with the Committee for Health to take oral evidence from officials from both departments on this matter once the analysis report had been published. The committee has also agreed to schedule an oral evidence session with the Northern Ireland Children's Commissioner on the proposals for a joint secure care and justice campus and other justice issues relevant to children and young people and to hold an informal meeting with the organisation that work with and or behalf of young people who experience the care and or justice systems on the issues. Uh, the arrangements will be made to schedule the evidence sessions and the informal meeting on the earliest suitable dates. The members are content. Thank you. Thank you. Then item 6, pages 56 to 59. On the table pack is correspondence from the Department of Justice 
advising that the President of the Victims Payment Board, Mr Justice McLinden, has decided to delay the opening of the Troubles uh, Permanent dis uh, Disablement Scheme until the 31st of August to allow applicants to familiarise themselves with the guidance in advance of submitting an application. Development of the medical assessment guidance is on track to be available by the 30th of June, and Victims Payments Board intends to organise informal sessions over the summer months to provide more details on the scheme and the medical assessment guidance in particular. So this is just to remind committee that we had offered to hold a further informal meeting with victims representatives groups if they would find that helpful following the meeting that took place in March of 2021. And we want to seek agreement of the members of the committee uh, to uh, the committee team to conduct uh, the information with the representatives to see if there's any further meeting that would be useful. Linda? Yeah, I, I think that's probably the important element of it. We should ask the groups, do they want a meeting with us? Because really the, the purpose of the meeting initially was for us to give any assistance we can to them in terms of making representations on their behalf. So really our role is not to to meet with them to tell them what we want or what we think should happen but it is about is there anything we yeah. can do to help yeah. you so I think that's probably the important element of it do they want our okay. assistance at this time and do they want to meet with us to get that book thank you uh, Rachel thanks chair sorry I um, cut out there my internet I'm having some problems here in the constituency office so apologies if item um, item 13.5 Five, I think it is, um, on the um, buffer zones and about a, a protest outside healthcare centres. I am just uh, wondering, was that covered already? No, no, no. Go ahead. Okay, no. Thank you, Chair. Apologies. And um, just um, if if we are um, if we are going to send on the correspond uh, or ask for correspondence from the department. Um, that was sent to the uh, Department of Health. Just wondering if we could also ask if the Department or Minister um, has engaged with the private members um, bill that is currently drafted on buffer zones. Um, and just if we can get any information on that, that would be um, of assistance. Okay, thank you. And in, ter in terms of the uh, decision by Justice McAlinden, Obviously, I think when, when I saw this at the start, I was a, a bit concerned because obviously it just adds to the timeline. But given the fact that it's only until the end of August and they have clarified the reasons as to why he has done it, and I think it's to be helpful rather than to be uh, merely delaying for any other purpose. So hopefully that will not uh, impede that much longer and it will be of benefit to those who want to and, uh, and will make uh, application to that particular scheme. Members, Chair, yes, uh, Sinead? Yes, Chair, I agree with you on that point. And also I want to, I think um, Linda's comments were very fair. It was about um, that extent, you know, why regrettable that it adds to a, an already very long timeline. It probably is wise and if it's there to support those applying, then it has to be a good thing. But I think Linda raised a really good point that those victims group know there is a channel to us if anything is dysfunctional. And I would second her uh, proposal to, to make contact if they feel a need to okay. be in touch with us. Okay, agreed. Thank you. Uh, and just our members content to action the remaining items of the correspondence set out in the cover sheet 
or whether they have any comments that they want to add. But I think Rachel has covered the ones that she wants, Linda and Sinead, so I think we're content with all of that. Yes? Thank you. That brings us then to item 14, which is the Chair's business. And just to advise members that the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee has postponed its visit to Northern Ireland uh, for, from next month to later in the year, and the next meeting with the Chair of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee to discuss committee scrutiny of the Northern Ireland Protocol will now take place in the autumn rather than in early July. Item 15 uh, is any other business, and it's to advise members that the First Lady Chief Justice in Northern Ireland and indeed across England and Wales and Scotland was appointed yesterday, uh, and I will write on behalf of the committee to Mrs Justice Siobhan Keegan to congratulate her on her appointment. And the Lord Chief Justice will be attending the meeting next week and there will be an opportunity to pay tribute to his contribution uh, at that stage. And just to inform members that I met with the Lord Chief Justice uh, this morning uh, at his request. And also I was very pleased that the First uh, Lady Chief Justice also was in attendance. So I, I passed on, and uh, we'll do it in a formal way, but we certainly congratulated her. It's a huge achievement. Uh, and I think it's something that we can be very proud of in our judicial process. And we look forward to the Lord Chief Justice, uh, Sir Declan Morgan, joining us next week. Uh, is there any other business that members want to raise? Sure, just Linda? To, just to echo your comments and, and congratulating the, the new Lady Chief Justice. And I'm sure we'll have her before the committee at, at some point as well. But yes. obviously we have the Lord Chief Justice here next week. So okay. thank you. Thank you. And members, that brings us to item 16, which is the date, time and place of the next meeting, which will take place on Thursday, the 24th of June at 11am, just under score the time for that one. It's at 11 and it'll be held in the Senate chamber uh, here in Parliament Buildings. And with that, can I thank you for your forbearance on my first meeting and uh, I promise to endeavour to do it better uh, the next time. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 30.